listening to the Northern Hunter Podcast, home of all things hunting, fishing, and outdoors in Alaska. All right, everybody, welcome back to the show. My name is James Payne. And I'm Dalton Gray. And I'm Mariah Humphreys. And today we're going to be talking about a topic that we have gotten probably the most questions about a specific species here in Alaska called yeah. the caribou. Yes, and sir. Uh, we've got many, many, many questions from listeners about this, mostly for DIY hunts and yeah. such. Um, it's a very common DIY hunt mm-hmm. for Alaska, honestly. Um, so we're going to dive into a little bit about that, um, understanding the regs, understanding how to tell bull from cow, how to hunt them, ways not to hunt them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. Um, go into all of that. And thank you to everybody that did write in and ask us questions about caribou. If you would like to write in with a question about just about anything, Alaska related, you can head to our website. We have a nice contact button mm-hmm. there at thenorthernhunter.com. Uh, you can also email us at info at thenorthernhunter.com or you can hit us up at our socials. If you search at the Northern Hunter on either Facebook or Instagram, you will find us there. Um, and while you're on the website, if you'd like to support what we're doing, you can go ahead and buy some really neat looking Northern Hunter merch that mm-hmm. is now live on the website. You can go there. Uh, we have t-shirts, hoodies, hats, all of that if you would like to wrap the logo and we have more designs coming mm-hmm. that we are working on hopefully soon to be up on the website yeah. um, and we have a nice partners page yes. that you can shop at and help us out and help our sponsors out and uh, Dalton will tell you a little bit about those guys yeah so if you head over to our partners page you can find currently we work with five different companies and uh, we have discount codes through four out of the five companies that we work with currently. Um, three of them all share the same discount code um, just for um, ease of remembering all of them um, for stealthy hunter and for yukon river knives and for hammer bullets the discount code is the northern hunter um, of course we've talked about the stealthy hunter equipment and all the mm-hmm. stealthy nutrition mm-hmm. products the rifle covers the glassing pads the first aid kits and uh, that they have a lot of great products there so you can use the discount code from stealthy hunter and shop from ryan lamper's equipment there um, also yukon river knives you've got the hunter the small game the atk rifle uh, sling and knife combo kit and then they've got a bunch of other knives as well um, they get just uh, a significant discount there as well with our discount code and then also hammer bullets you get a discount code off of any of your bullet needs there um, and they are always expanding they've got a lot of things in the works um, some new exciting stuff coming up here hopefully in the next year or so that they're testing right now uh, mm-hmm. down in australia and uh, but yeah so currently you can find all of their existing lineup um, for sale on the hammerbullets.com and we've talked about those before, but they seem to always be in stock. Yep. So you can order online directly from Hammer and use the Northern Hunter at checkout in your promo code box for a discount code there. And then we also work with Batum 907, uh, all of our bear attractants and lures for bear baiting. And then if you need any trapping lures or moose hunting lures, mm-hmm. uh, Batum 907 is a local Alaska company, and you can use a discount code at checkout from us. If you type in TNHP, you get a discount code there from us as well. And then last but not least, our remaining partner is Weatherby Rifles in Sheridan, Wyoming. And uh, no discount code there. But uh, if you do decide to shop from Weatherby, let them know we sent you. Absolutely. And I'll go a step farther and say, if you guys do purchase equipment from any of our sponsors, then you heard about them from the show, um, and you end up using it in the field, send us a photo. Yeah. yeah. We would love to see that. We'd love to, to hear about your success, um, hear about how you're liking the products and things like that. Because we try to work with companies that we believe in and that mm-hmm. we um, agree with. Uh, that they're they're functional, they're useful, and they're really good all American companies. So, yes. um, man, I gotta say, 
fire season took a minute to kick in this year, but it did. But it's here. It is here, it man. Is definitely here. If, if I sound a little off, it's because uh, I spent four days up in Barrow, mm-hmm. and there's no smoke up there. Right. <laughs> and then when I came back, man, the this smoke? smoke has been has been affecting. Does it really get to you? Uh, not usually, but I think just because it's been gone for so huh. long. Normally, like the first week of smoke kind of makes my throat dry out and whatnot but mm-hmm. so yeah uh, once other, i get used to it this last week i was working and it was you know 90 degrees mm-hmm. in the shade <laughs> yeah <laughs> and uh, i was working in the sun installing some metal siding and uh so it's just the sun just be reflecting off the siding and just standing oh, there and yeah. just, just dripping with sweat mm-hmm. and um and i uh surprised you didn't just was, shrivel up it Ryan. was that evening that i get home and i'm looking at the uh, forecast and it's like it, it went past North Pole, but south of North Pole, like Ielson and especially Salsha got hit with inch and a half hail. Oh, really? And uh, they had some, and, and we had a bunch of lightning and all that kind of stuff. It didn't, and it kind of spared North Pole and Fairbanks, mm-hmm. but all of a sudden, all that lightning, it was, most of it was dry. Yeah. Too, so that's why yeah. all, all of a sudden there's fires everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I heard somewhere there's like, I think the last count I heard was like 14 different fires going on. Oh, no. um, and it might be more than that now, um, especially at the time that right. this recording comes out. I heard of two more that happened this afternoon that just started really? um, just north of town. Yeah. Yep. And, and for anybody listening that doesn't know Alaska's fire, fire season, um, we very commonly have a lot of forest fires up mm-hmm. here. Um, Alaska, much of Alaska burns every year, um, sometimes mm-hmm. millions of acres. Yeah. And you don't really hear about it a whole lot because a lot of it's out in the middle of nowhere. Right. Um, there's no villages, there's no towns, there's no anything. So in those situations, just let it burn. Just let it burn. Yeah. Um, unless there's, you know, unless it is encroaching a dangerous well, area, you right, know, there's right. a lot of areas where there might be a, a group of cabins mm-hmm. along a river where we'll go try to protect those. Right. Or something right. Like that. Right. But, um, so as of the fourth, it says there was 157. Uh, oh, here we go. No, nope. here's a currently information. 284 fires in Alaska. Really? Yep. Holy cow. Yeah. And most of those are, you know, local less than 10 acres, mm-hmm. I think. And then, you know, there's, you're, you got local and moderate. Well, and, that, and then that's the weird large. thing is, is up until I think like this last couple of weeks, maybe just this last week, this was, was one of the best fire years we've oh, had in a yeah. long time. I think it's yeah. because I mean, it, it stayed cool and wet for a while. It really did. And yeah. I mean, it's when the heat comes that we, you know, the, it brings in the lightning storms. And, yeah. Yeah. Because I remember last year, yeah, it it, he, it warmed up a lot faster than it did this year. Right. I mean, the, the breakup still took a little while to kick in, but once it did, it, it, it came it in full came force. It came fast, yeah. Yeah. I would say this year, or, or, well, I will say for people listening, this is about two weeks, a week and a half, two weeks from when you'll be hearing this mm-hmm. episode is when we're recording. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, there might be a lot more by then, or maybe they managed to burn themselves out, but yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah. <laughs> Could definitely use some rain right about now, but I know that's coming right around the corner anyway. It's almost August. By the time this comes out, it will be August. And yep. usually mm-hmm. that's when our rainy season starts. So on the grand scheme of things, compared to what we've had in past years, even yeah. if the fires are terrible for two or three weeks, it's not going to last all that mm-hmm. long. Right. You know, yeah. so it's not going to be nearly as bad as it has been. Mm-hmm. But like you said, going from no smoke all summer until the end of July until Fairbanks is affected. Yeah. We've been pretty fortunate. In that oh, regard. absolutely. It's definitely weird. But, yeah, it's yeah. been kind of nice. I, I'm not, <laughs> it has I'm been not really nice. I'm not complaining. You know, la- last year I was I was working construction and and we almost got smoked out of a couple job sites. Really? Yeah. Just because the, the air quality was so bad. I mean, you couldn't see a couple hundred yards. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So yeah. 
But last year, I, I feel it was a real bad fire year. Yeah. Um, I don't know the actual statistics or the numbers, but right. just but, but just how Fairbanks and locally, yeah, we right. had a lot of smoke. It seemed like a really bad yeah. fire year. Well, and Fairbanks is is in the middle Tananal Valley. It's just kind of stagnant. We don't tend to get a whole lot of wind. Right. There's yeah. wind in every direction around us, but we are <laughs> in kind of a well. It's the middle Tananal Valley, mm-hmm. and so it just tends to kind of come in and just settle, and it doesn't go anywhere for a while. So. Right. Yeah, yeah, a stiff a stiff breeze around here might flutter a piece of paper. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's and that's probably, I mean, a big reason why the trees are the way that they are. Yeah. But every time we do get a, a stiff gust of wind around here, <laughs> they fall over. Yeah, yeah. You get them yeah. falling over and knocking pa- power lines yeah. over. Power's out, the wind's blowing. Yeah. Yeah. So to kick this one off, Mo, you found an interesting article that ties into something I did. we did. And we talked about this. Dalton and I talked about this. Mm-hmm. Um, the episode I missed. One of the episodes you missed. Yep. And uh, the title of this article is Alaska Game Managers Dispute Study Saying Predator Control Does Work. Mm-hmm. So the study said that it doesn't work. Yeah. And the big game managers are saying that it does. So this is on Alaska Public Media. Um, they could have done a better job with that title. I'm just going to put that on the record. Yeah, <laughs> I, I I remember refining the article and reading it, and then when I went to look at it again today, I was like, "Wait, is this what I'm saying? What I think it's saying?" <laughs> what episode did you and I talk about that on? Um, that, that was, was the "Don't question. Believe Everything You Read on the Internet." That's right. Episode. Okay, yeah, 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 yeah that yeah. one. That's right. Or don't I think that don't trust everything you read on the yeah, internet? Yeah, maybe that yeah. was. I wasn't here, so I don't know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> something like that. All right, so. So, so I mean, state game managers are pushing back on research that says Alaska's predator control programs don't work. Um, there's a paper by retired state biologists and a University of Alaska Fairbanks professor that says um, harvests did not improve just following predator control. So I think that was some of what we were reading was referencing. Now, mm. this article is specifically a interview done by uh, Casey Grove, who's, who, who works for Alaska Public Media. With one with it with at least one, one wildlife manager yeah. in Alaska, um, and and basically what he says is, if you look at the history, kind of like what we were talking about, and it's kind of there's not a lot, there, there's a lot to read through here, but basically he says if you look at the history, it does show that it has worked, and right, sure yeah. there's there are <clears throat> cases where it may not be the best solution or it may not work or it may not even be needed, but mm-hmm. most of the time. It it has shown to increase right cervid uh, uh, reproductive rate and uh, you know or survival rate and herd size. Yep. Mm-hmm. Well, and the one thing I like about this this article, reading through it quickly, is uh, you know part of that article and the part that really kind of screamed out to me that that I really disagreed with. I mean, other than the entire thing, was um, when they said that intensive management was controversial, and I think I made a comment on that yeah. when I came yeah. back to the show. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I like that he points out in, in the interview, uh, when asked about that, mm-hmm. that intensive management laws came about in 1994, right after several decades of research mm-hmm. in the interior South and South Central had looked at the effects of wolf and bear predation on moose and caribou populations. So it was not a willy nilly decision that they made. Right. It was not something that they just came up with out of thin air. You know, this is something that took a long time. To, to figure out, okay, this is what f- helps. This is what fixes this particular situation. And it's been around for 20 years. You know, that style right, of management's right. been around for 20 years. So it, ju- it just shows a level of ignorance in, in, in the person that was writing the original article mm-hmm. about the understanding of how Alaska's wildlife management system right. actually works. Right. 
So one of the other things I saw in in this current article, uh, and, and the guy interviewed was Tom Paragi. Um, I believe mm-hmm. I'm saying his name right. And he said, and this is at the end of the article, but he says, you know, the intent behind the intensive management is to increase harvest of moose caribou and deer in areas where it's important for human use and where it's been documented through a long history of use. But the values, everybody weighs in on the values, and it's through the political process that those values get decided. Right. So, you know, he's basically saying intensive management, wildlife management is science informed. The people's values aren't. Mm-hmm. And that's the truth right. of the matter. Yeah, if you have right. a problem with hunting in general, you're not going to like this. Right. And most of what a lot of those articles and stuff were, it was very politically based. Yeah, right. not Correct. Uh, and not scientific based. Because, yeah, it's a lot better right. for the game population. And mm-hmm. I mean, and he mentions in here how they, they have studies that show when you, when you kill predators, you kill a large amount of predators in an area, it increases the population of the, you know, moose, deer, or elk, mm-hmm. or all of the above, depending on where you're, where you're at. Yeah. Uh, did I say elk? You just caribou elk. and deer. I guess it could work for elk, you know, <laughs> on, on some of the sure islands. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, it probably really would, honestly. But uh, if you went on those islands and killed a bunch of bears. But, <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, anyway, he says, and then what you can watch is it will increase their populations. And after a few years, you'll watch your population start to decrease again mm-hmm. when the predators start to move back in in just yeah. a few years, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. And, and that's, I mean, honestly, the natural balance of things. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, predators will eat themselves out of an area right. just the same way as when we talked about how caribou herds mm-hmm. are cyclic and they'll get blown up 10, 20 times in the herd size and then they'll eat out all the food in an area and right. then next thing you know, now they're dying off of starvation. Right. Mm-hmm. Predators don't have any more of a, of a food control or, or of an eating control system as ungulates do, right? They're right. just going to eat and eat and kill and kill they're in a lot kill of them cases. kill all they're gone. Like with wolves, they'll kill for sport. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, and so they'll kill them till they're gone and then they'll move on to the next herd and do the same thing. And then the five that are left can slowly reproduce. Right. Right. <laughs> right. And, and, you know, the other thing I like about what he pointed out in this article is the, the, he addressed the concerns that, well, it's the harsh winters and whatnot that do it. It's not the predator management and this at the other. And he points out a study um, and maybe we can link this, this article somewhere in I can in put the it show. in the description. Yep. Yeah. In the description. Yeah. Uh, for anybody that wants to read it, but he, he talks about a study where they did uh, predator management in, in certain areas mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, where mm-hmm. they had the same basic winters, right? right? It's in the same mountain range, the same conditions, the same snow patterns, same cold. And in certain areas, they did uh, predator management. And I believe he's talking specifically about a moose area here. Right. Um, and in certain areas, they didn't. And regardless of the winter conditions, whether it was harsh winters or not harsh winters, they still saw an uptick in production and survival rate of right. calves and everything like that, where yeah. they did the predator management. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, now, obviously, harsh winters and things like that still play a role and will kill off some animals. I mean, yeah. sometimes they just don't survive, especially if we have like a midwinter rain like we did that one year. Right. Right. Um, that's really hard on, on the big animals, especially like moose. Um, but just... I mean, the, the proof is in the pudding. You know, yeah. if, you, if you look back on, on Alaska wildlife management systems, I mean, right. this is decades of data. Yeah, it know? is, yeah. And yeah. Yeah. as far back as they've been, you know, and, and the decades of data that we have based on this style of management was based on decades of research prior to that mm-hmm. for them developing this research or for this management style. And, and I just, I, I think it shouldn't get to a point where they need to do this if people were doing better job at predator management ourselves too. Oh yeah. I, I, I think In, w- right. when we're out looking for caribou, when we're out looking for moose, 
I mean, we've talked about it on the show a bunch, but if you do, you know, I'm not saying target them specifically, right? But if you get an opportunity, you know, it's more of an opportunistic target, right? Don't don't skip out on it. You yeah, know, so, you, you could be yeah. saving, um, and, and the numbers go, you know, all over the place on how right. many moose you're saving per wolf or how many caribou right. you're saving per, right. per wolf. And, and you can look at a bunch of different studies and get different numbers. But I mean, you could technically be saving like a dozen caribou per mm-hmm. se, you know, rough number. Um, if, if you take out even just one wolf. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a, it's a really important thing, I think, for, for our natural resources to, right. for us to continue, especially as more people are coming up and wanting to use these resources. Right. You know, we've got to manage it a little bit better than we used to. Yeah. Well, I want to mention it's not an expensive tag. I'm not sure how much it is, but it's not an expensive tag for a non-resident. For a non-resident. They can yeah. get a wolf tag over the counter when they come up here. Right. And just mm-hmm. about anywhere in the state, they'll be able to shoot a wolf yeah. when they're hunting, right? Yeah. In the fall. It's yeah. In the fall. In, yeah. in the fall, yeah. I believe they open up in August, same as everything yeah. else. In, right. in most places. I think some areas are September, but yeah. yeah that's, always yeah. look at the regs. But, yeah. Always look at the but regs. It, you right. know, it, and the reason we, we point out the wolves thing, like, because a lot of guys that, I mean, I've heard the story a lot where, oh, well, you know, we're, we're moose hunting and if I shoot a wolf, it's a gunshot. It might scare away the moose. Right. Um, <laughs> that wolf is going to do a better job three, of running moose out than four you Four years ago now, mm-hmm. I don't remember when it was. I shot my first, it was moose season. Um, I shot I shot a wolf and it was right in the area that we watched where moose moved through. And uh, I shot the wolf there. We went down, we hauled it up, I skinned it out. Two days later, somebody else in the hunting party shot a moose almost like you know, 100 yards from where I shot that wolf. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And uh, it's it's actually been interesting to see when you shoot a wolf out of an area, the wolf pack a lot of times will move off because they sense danger mm-hmm. and the moose will come in. So it's not going to decrease your chances, right? but there is a good chance it will increase your chances right? and 100% kill the wolves. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. Kill the bears if you can't, you know, I, I'm just yeah. as much ready to target a grizzly bear or a wolf on a moose hunt, especially if I'm on a moose hunt with five or six people yeah. and everybody's got a moose tag. <laughs> yeah. I will bust my butt to go shoot a wolf or a bear if the opportunity presents itself because yeah. they're going to shoot the moose, yeah. right? Yeah. I'm not, yeah. you know, we're going to get the meat. Right. You know, right. That's, that's the way I feel about it. It's not yeah. necessarily what I'm there to hunt until it shows up and then mm-hmm. that's what I'm there to hunt. Right. If I can. And for anybody cringing in the lower 48 that hasn't had our, heard our prior episodes about this, we're not talking about Idaho or Montana numbers up here there are north of what is it 13 to fifteen thousand wolves in this state that they've estimated yeah i don't remember what that number is there's over thirty thousand grizzly bears in this state i think and over a hundred thousand black bears so dalton is the the, the latest or the latest numbers that they've published yeah um and our guess is there's actually a lot more than that oh absolutely there are Absolutely. So it, it's not when we say, you know, definitely go kill the wolves, definitely go kill the bears. It's not that we're working with limited numbers. They're not endangered up here. No, they're not. This is not a. And they're, they're not endangered in most of the lower 48 states either. No, they're not. <laughs> they're it's, not. It's a political thing down yeah. there. Too. That's true. But it's all parks. I'm thousands and, of miles away. So I try to. Yeah. You know, but, you <laughs> stick, know, I, I stick with what I know. I, I have a lot of <laughs> um, trustworthy sources mm-hmm. and other people that, that hunt and live down there. And they say the exact same thing that we do yeah. up here. There is no shortage of them. And any opportunity you get within obviously your legal bounds, yeah. you ought to be shooting predators. I know that every year, uh, I've been watching this and hearing more and more about it, but it seems every year the the human and grizzly encounters in the greater Yellowstone area get more and more. Well, somebody I mean, just, just got killed a, a, what, what, last week. Yeah, last week. This lady got yeah. found on a trail. A couple, couple weeks ago by the time this comes out, but yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. 
Um, Happens every year. Yep. Multiple times. And I mean, and it's, you know, not even hunters. Mm-mm. You know, there's people that are getting mauled just walking around looking yep. for rocks and sheds right. And, right. And, and fossils looking and who knows rocks. anything else, you know. Hey. But it's, it's actually like a big thing down there. It's a big thing. Yeah. <laughs> what? Yeah, yeah oh, it's yeah. a big thing down there. What kind of rocks are these people well, looking for? I mean, for one, they're looking for fossils in the rocks. Mm-hmm. You can find those. Um, they're looking for different <laughs> types of rocks. I mean, hey. it's volcanic area, so they have different oh. kinds of rocks. Right. Well, I mean, there's a podcast that everybody would probably know if I mentioned it, but one of the big guys on that podcast, he's a, he calls himself a rock hound, and he'll post pictures of rocks on Instagram. Mm-hmm. Be like, what kind of rock is this? Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Well, I must well, that not and- be familiar with that. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 uh, I always jokingly tell people, but it's not joking. It's dead serious. <laughs> I can drive by a mountain and have zero inclination to climb that mountain. But if you put a doll sheep on that mountain <laughs> or a grizzly bear or a black bear or a caribou, <laughs> man, yeah, I can't hit my brakes fast <laughs> enough, you know? Right. I, I just, I have zero, uh, zero interest in going out and climbing mountains and putting out all that just effort. Just to do it. Just to do it. <laughs> I, I don't know. People will do it. I have no interest in ever climbing Mount McKinley, which, mm-hmm. yes, that's what it's called. It's not <laughs> Mount Denali. It's, it will forever be Mount McKinley in my mind. Most ha- Alaskans will call it that. Yeah. But, yeah. but if you put, a world record cheap on on Mount McKinley and opened up a governor's tag for it. Heck yeah, I'd put in for it and mm-hmm. try to go hunt it. Or Mount Everest, you know, all these guys that, <laughs> that die climbing Mount Everest. They were all highly motivated at one point. <laughs> for what? Just to climb it? I mean, but I would dare to say. You're not even the first guy to do it. A lot more people in the world have shot doll sheep on top of mountains and have climbed Mount Everest or Mount Denali for that matter. McKinley. I don't know, man. There's a lot of people that go up Everest uh, yeah, these days. Yeah, I don't know, man. Like, they have, like, like just trails of people that go up there with, with the guys. The, it's actually kind of disturbing when you watch the, the video footage of what it looks like in modern times. The crazy part about that kind of stuff to me is that there are literally frozen graveyards of bodies up oh, there. Oh, yeah. They, they, don't, they don't pull the bodies that off. That are never going to be able to be recovered. Yeah. They are up there until an avalanche happens or until they just get buried and people literally walk over them up the mountain. Yeah. I I cannot believe that you would just go through that risk just to climb a mountain. And that, that's just such a different <laughs> mindset to me. I think it's just whatever you like. I mean, oh, cause, yeah. Because honestly, I'm, I'm sure there's tons of people that would be like the same thing where why would you risk that just to, to get a sheep? Yeah. You know, and it's, <laughs> yeah. And, and arguably, yeah. that's a big reason. Like, you know, I haven't done much sheep hunting in my life. Yeah. And, and that's a big reason is because I look more yeah. at, at meat yield than anything. And there's not a whole lot of meat yield on a, on a dull sheep. You know, yeah. that's more of a, Oh, yeah. uh, a self-challenge thing. So since and, I brought it up. Yeah. And so it, it's more about what you, what you, you chase. Yeah. Right. It's more yeah. about what, right. what turns your wheels. Right. So right. since I brought it up. Okay. How many doll sheep are killed a year in Alaska approximately? Oh, I. 800 to a thousand. It's been a little lower recently, yeah, but 800 I, to a thousand is pretty common. Okay. Yearly. Uh, I, I'm going to have to fact check that. I, 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 did. I, I don't know. That's, um, <laughs> that's what he's been to doing. This, yeah. To this point, as of January this year, 6,338 6, people have climbed Mount Everest and reached the summit. Really? Yeah. So more folks have killed doll sheep. Oh, yeah. By a long shot. Yeah. Wow. And that's not even including Yukon and BC. And right. Yeah. 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 Huh. Interesting. I, I would have thought it'd be a lot more than that going up Going up. But Everest. still, that's well, 6,000 sure a lot more that have people. gone up, but how many people make it to the top? That's very true. Right. And there's a lot that's more people very that true. go on a sheep hunt than yeah. kill a sheep. That's very true. Now, 35,000 people have attempted to summit McKinley, but only a few. 
I don't want to know if you reach the top. How many people <laughs> have reached the summit? Interesting. Yeah. Well, yeah, but, I, I don't know. But either way, you can compare it however you want. But we have a large number of predators in this state. Yes. And so Back just that. keep that in mind. If you're in the lower 48 listening to this and you're hearing us talk yeah. about predator management in a way that may seem a little flippant to people in the lower 48, it's because we have a very, very different population density than, than there. And, you know, I, I, I feel like we should address this particular um, mindset that we have about predator management. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of guys in the lower 48 that really enjoy bear hunting just for the sake of bear hunting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just because they like it. They like the meat. And they don't look at it through the eyes of predator management. Yeah. Right? We do because we have a very different system up here. Mm-hmm. Our, um, I, I, I don't know if it's an ecosystem or however you want to label it that, yeah. that we have here in Alaska. We have hard and fast data proving that our bears kill a lot of ungulate species. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A lot. Mm-hmm. Thousands and thousands a year die to just bears. Yeah. Not even including wolves. In the lower 48, a lot of these mountain bears, I mean, for the most part, black bears is what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. A a lot of those bears might not kill a lot of deer because deer don't live out there, right? Some of these, and and now now, occasionally, sure, they'll kill an elk or or, or a deer here and there, Mm -hmm. but some of these bears grow old and die and and they might not kill that many ungulate species in their lifetime. They're eating roots and plants and berries and... They're just foraging. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. They're just herbivores, basically. But our system is different up here. Now, obviously, throughout different parts of Alaska, certain pockets of populations have Mm -hmm. a different diet than others. And if there is a moose-rich population, you can put your money on it Mm -hmm. that they are killing moose if there are an Mm -hmm. abundant population of moose in their area. If there aren't, Maybe that population of bears only eats berries and ground squirrels and roots and things like that right. for the most part. Not saying that they won't be opportunistic if a caribou or a moose walks through their area, mm-hmm. but for the most part, they might only be eating plants and maybe the occasional ground squirrel if they can find it. Yeah. However, the vast majority of the state is inhabited with abundant ungulate species. Mm-hmm. And when that is the case, there are bears and they do attack the prey animals. Yeah. 110%. That is what happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we have the data to back that up. We do. And so for us, we harp on predator management and we look at it as a direct um, benefit and long-term help to our species that we like to hunt for meat mm-hmm. because every predator that we kill has a direct relation and result on the ungulate species that we want to hunt. Yeah. That's why we have bear bait. Yep. That's why we uh, take any opportunity we can to shoot bears and wolves even in the fall. Mm-hmm. And some guys, you know, that they are hardcore bear baiters and they say, well, I don't want to shoot a grizzly bear in the fall because then I can't shoot one over spring on my right. bait station because it's the same hunting year. Yeah. From July 1st to June 30th is our hunting flip over year mm-hmm. for bears. So from that perspective, in my mind, I don't care. Yeah. If I have a grizzly bear that I can kill in September while mm-hmm. I'm moose hunting, I'm going to shoot it. Yeah. Because I don't have the guarantee that it's going to work out to kill one over a bait in May or June. Right. 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 A bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. Yeah. Right. So to me, 
I'm going to make the direct impact now rather than hope that I can have fun and shoot one next spring. Mm -hmm. That's just my perspective. But a lot of guys think that way that bear bait. They think, yeah, well, you know, I, right. I, don't, I don't really want to bear bait. And, I, I don't really want to go spot and stalk bear hunting in the fall because then I might not be able to bear bait as much in the spring. Yeah. Well, and, and I, th I feel like a lot of that has less to do with the fun of shooting one in the spring over yeah. your bait and more the necessity of maybe needing to if it comes in and starts running the black bears off. Right. Because now you're stuck just trying to run it off well, rather than being able to actually take it out of the equation. I, I've um, got a lot of solutions to run grizzly bears off of bear bait. <laughs> well, I mean, right. one of them worked really well right. this year. Right. You know, <laughs> there are ways to do it. Growing up, yeah. legally, I in might a add. Bear baiting, in a huge bear baiting family, mm. I would say I could definitely see somebody doing it because they want to hunt bears in the spring and they would rather do that oh, than I'm the sure. fall. I'm not saying that's and, there's not the and, motivation for and, that. Right. And even but. just doing it for the fun of it. However, I would think that most, I would say, that most of the people who are going to say, well, I really don't want to shoot one in the fall because it'll ruin my spring hunt. A lot of those guys do kill a grizzly bear most every spring. Mm. Not all of them. One of them that I know that says that kills one almost every year. Okay. One of yeah. them. Okay. And, I, and I know several guys that say that. Well, I, I don't want to shoot a grizzly bear in the fall because then if I get one on my bait in the spring, then I can't shoot it. Right, okay. yeah. And only one of those guys that says that. Yeah. And, and I think we all know who I'm talking about here. Yeah. Only one of them is consistent at killing grizzly bears. Mm. So for him, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. He's, you know, yeah. maybe he's cracked the magic code and he killed another <laughs> big know. grizzly bear this year. Oh, he, yeah. He, he killed he a did. smoker. He did. Um, but most guys don't have that kind of repeatable success mm -hmm. year after year right. after year. Yeah. And even he has to bust his bones to kill a grizzly bear every year. I oh, mean, he's yeah. sitting night after night after night for 10, 12 hours just mm -hmm. to kill a grizzly bear every year. Right. That's a lot of work. And it might not work, right? Mm -hmm. It might not happen. So I, I, anyway, I, sa I say all that to say this. You have three black bear tags in most of the areas that you're going to bear bait. Mm -hmm. Five and some, some. Some five black bear yeah. tag areas, right? And to me, most guys, I mean, it, realistically speaking, how many guys every spring kill three black bears minimum over a bear bait? Like percentage? Yeah. 1%. Yeah, <laughs> you think it's that low? It can't be that high. It's not, I'm not saying it's the, that high. With but the number of 1%? bear baiters, the number of bear baiters, yeah, They're, the number of baits I have walked in on and seen their setup, yeah, and I know they haven't even had a bear on their bait because they don't know what they're doing. Yet they put all the money into it and try every year, which <sighs> is I, fine. I would just like to yeah. believe people are more successful. <laughs> But, but well, to kill three black bears that does take on your tag. That does take right? a lot. Yeah. Because I know yeah. if any of us have a have a bait that's that productive. Yeah. Unless we, you know, if I kill two black bears on a bait, I'm going to be going, James Dalton, are you guys like not having, not doing yeah. good? You want right. to come, you need to come yeah. kill a bear, yeah. right? Yeah. I'm opening it and up to somebody you guys, else. I'm going to have my right. wife in there. I'm going to have you know, right. another buddy. Right. Because you know, share, share hunt it. Because yeah. to be honest with you, after two bears, my mm -hmm. freezer is full in the springtime. It is. Don't get me wrong. If I had the opportunity, and it just worked out, then okay, I probably would, but man, I'd have to have a lot of bears. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, right. and I, you know, you know, cause I got, you know, my, my cameraman that was working with me this year, I wanted to kill, get him to kill a bear. Cause if he kills a bear, he's going to have a passion for it now. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure he probably does anyways. Cause I, cause I can tell you for, for a lot of people, the, the passion of baiting is not just the killing, mm -hmm. but also just the doing. Right. You know, right. It, yeah. it's, it's the work you put in. It's, it's getting out in the woods in the spring. It's having fun. But before we go too far down this rabbit hole. <laughs> That's a good, good point there, yeah. I want to wrap this back one, with one last, fact, one last fact, and then we'll 
we'll move on to our, our actual topic here. But the article that this, so the article we're talking about today is disputing the article you two talked about. Yeah. And just to wrap that up into comparison's sake, there are, what, five different, um, you know, sub-ecosystems in the lower 48 they're trying to recover grizzly bears in. Is that correct? Four or five? Somewhere I in there. I couldn't tell you. It, it's somewhere, it's, it, there's not a whole lot. I mean, it's big areas, don't get me wrong. But yeah. like, um, and in some of those areas, they, in years past, have been pushing for, let's just get 50 bears yeah. back in this area. Yeah. Let's just get 50 grizzlies back in this ecosystem yeah. and we'll consider them on their way to being recovered. Yeah. The original article that you two talked about in that episode, yeah. fish and game biologists took out 94 grizzlies. Yeah. In 17 that days. That were only, those were only the grizzlies hunting that particular caribou yeah, herd. that's right. They were watching over the herd and only shooting the bears that were coming in to predate on that particular herd. And only over and like that, 17 days. And only over 17 days. And yeah. that probably didn't put a dent right. in the population of bears in that area. Exactly. Um, so comparative sake, you have entire ranges in the lower 48 that they're just trying to get 50 bears in. Yeah. And these guys killed almost double that. That was just hunting one caribou herd. For just over two weeks. For just over two weeks. Yeah. Our population of bears is different up here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So understand that when, when we're talking about it and when we're advising other people to do it. And, yeah. and when you are out on a hunt too, if you live up here or mm-hmm. you're able to shoot a grizzly, yeah. whether with a guide or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, if you have some next of kin you're coming up to hunt with. Yeah. Um, you know, definitely keep that in mind. Yeah. And so with that, We'll take a quick break, and then we'll dive into caribou. Okay. Hammer Bullets produces what we at the Northern Hunter consider to be the most premium and best-working monolithic bullets on the market today. These bullets are easy to load, extremely accurate, and best of all, they're always in stock and ready to ship. The guys at Hammer designed them so that after penetrating the hide of an animal, it sheds its petals, initiating a massive energy dump while retaining the rear shank for maximum penetration. These bullets are built with 100% focus on how they perform on game, and their proprietary designs produce great BCs with specialized pressure grooves for amazing inherent accuracy and speed. They have a minimum expansion velocity of 1,800 feet per second, which allows for long-range shots, but with no maximum velocity, making them perfect for every cartridge from your granddaddy's old 3030 to the high-velocity round like the Weatherby 3378 without having to worry about your bullet failing. To view their expansive selection and find the perfect match for your hunting needs, go to hammerbullets.com and use discount code THENORTHERNHUNTER to drop the hammer on your next adventure. So I've got to say, caribou are by far, I'm not going to say they're my favorite to hunt, mm-hmm. but they are by far my favorite deer species. Hmm. I think caribou just, they look cool, they act cool, they're just, they're just cool creatures, man. So, so how many think, deer species do we have in Alaska? Just for folks that don't know. Three, if I remember right. We've got the moose, we've got the caribou, and we've got the black-tailed deer. Now, do we consider the invasive whitetails and muleys? No, because as much... They, their picture might show up in the regs book, but they're not recognized as an Alaskan species. Mm. Um, so for those... Because they're non-native. Because they're non-native, yeah. And, and there's no designated season for them other than... Shoot on open, site. Open all year long. Right. Yeah, shoot on site. They're yeah. invasive. Um, right. Now, at some point, I actually probably wouldn't be against the idea of them migrating up here permanently. I mean, We're, it would just offer one more opportunity, but it depends on how that would 
factor into other ecosystems. But I've heard that they're really concerned about um, white tails on muleys bringing up CWD yeah. to Alaska, though. Oh, I can see that. Because, yeah. yeah, we don't have that problem up here for the right. most part. Yeah, right. I, I don't think I've ever heard of a single case up yeah. here. I haven't mm-hmm. heard of it. But, but for caribou, um, one thing I think is so cool about them is they actually have the biggest antlers um, per, per, per body per size, body size yeah. of any deer species. Right. Oh. Um, mm-hmm. And another cool factor is that the males and the females have antlers, mm-hmm. which I believe they're the only ones that do that as well outside of a couple of really small mm-hmm. deer species. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so that can be really cool to look at. Mm-hmm. It can also make it really confusing if you're a non-resident hunter because mm-hmm. in almost every part of the state, non-residents are restricted to bull only. Mm-hmm. Um, and I believe that's true outside of maybe designated regulation hunts. I would have to double check that. Okay. But I, th- I think there are some regulation hunts where you can shoot either or if, if that's what. As a non-resident? As, I think so. Like, I, I don't know 100% what the rules are for the 40 mile. Yeah. Because I know a lot of, <laughs> a lot of people hunt that that I don't think are residents. Yeah. Oh, um, well, yeah, for sure. But I, I'm pretty sure that the 40 mile and the Nelchina herd and at least most of the herds up north that I know of mm-hmm. are bull only. Are bull only. For okay. I, yeah. and, and that's been my assumption. Yeah. Um, the whole time and the, the regulation hunts might be the one exception I'm, it, it's my only thing so yeah. look into that for sure right but, right for sure um, no caribou are just awesome man yeah oh uh, yeah I, I think I mean just and you know a lot of people say they're kind of just silly animals that run, wander around and do whatever they want yeah um, and I think that's kind of cool too actually <laughs> I think I think when, when you look at how far they travel in yeah. like a single day yeah. and like just they just roam everywhere, man. I mean, yeah. and they're, you got herds that are going into Alaska, back into Canada, mm-hmm, back mm-hmm. into Alaska, and yeah. you got some herds that are more residential. Mm-hmm. Um, man, they're just cool critters. So I, I think they're awesome. Alaska only has barren ground caribou, for folks that don't know. Mm. Um, in Canada, they have woodland caribou and they right. have mountain caribou, which are considered different species than barren ground caribou. Mm-hmm. However, in some parts... Um, there are localized herds of caribou that kind of just stay in the mountains mm-hmm. pretty much year round. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, they'll move around through the winter to different wintering grounds, but they'll pretty much stay in the mountains all winter. Yeah. They don't like migrate hundreds and hundreds of miles right. like some of the other herds do in the state. Yeah. Um, and even though they stay in the mountains, they're still considered barren ground species, <laughs> which is a little bit confusing, but you know, that's just what Alaska calls them as just all barren ground caribou yeah. as a species. Now, for non-residents, I'd say this is probably the most common DIY hunt we've heard of yeah. oh, since yeah. starting this show. Yeah. And the most common one, I would say black bears up there too. Yeah, black bears definitely up there too, but caribou for sure. Black-tailed deer is another real popular one. Yeah, um, but mm-hmm. probably percentage-wise of DIY hunters in Alaska from out of state, mm-hmm. I would say over half are probably going to be caribou. Hunts. Even resident hunters, really. I mean, I know a lot of guys that go after caribou that really don't try to do anything else. Yeah, mm. interesting. Just well, for the meat. and part of that, well, one, you get a decent harvest of meat, but two is probably ease of access mm-hmm. as well, which right. we'll talk about a little bit later. And the abundance of game. Yeah, for the most part. So skipping through some units here, there's definitely some units, some are harvest tickets, some are registration, but that have uh, one one caribou for a resident and non-resident, both, some of them. 
So okay. for, so for the so registration bull, tags, yeah, but bull or cow, yeah, some yeah. of them do. So you reg- some of them registration, some of them are harvest ticket. But yeah, mm-hmm. interesting. Okay. And for anybody that's that's new to reading the Alaska regs, typically speaking, if they just state the the name of the species, mm-hmm. so like any caribou, you know, one caribou, one moose, something like that, probably, that would be a weird one. Yeah, probably but, not going <laughs> <happen. laughs> to happen. But like, if it does state that, you know, one bear, or something like that, mm-hmm. it's it's speaking to both. Both yeah. sexes. Yeah. So yeah. you've got bull or carib or bull or cow, yeah. um, boar or sow, either way. Right. Like right. if it doesn't specify, then yes. you're you're usually able to shoot both. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and then in a lot of cases you'll see in the regs, it'll break it down into a lot of individual lines, mm-hmm. even in the same units, even in the same right. um in, in the same animal. And um you'll have to look at the bottom of the reg book, but it, it does specify, I believe it's uh R for resident, N for non resident. B for both. Yep. Mm-hmm. And then it'll just have different colored lines, different, you know, regulations. Yep. And so different definitely make times. sure you're double, look, yeah. you're double checking. Yep. Um, cause sometimes if you look quickly, you might see an area that says any caribou, but that might be under just the R for residents. Right. Mm-hmm. So make sure if you're coming up here visiting for a DIY hunt that you're, you're checking into that. Right. Um, no, there's but, a diverse set of regulations that caribou in some of the areas. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they do get pretty diverse. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot of differences. So, Mo, yeah. when's caribou season open? Well, the 40 mile this year is the 10th, right? Yep. In most parts of the state, caribou opens August 10th, mm-hmm. um, alongside with doll sheep. And, and um, well, I guess deer opens the first, doesn't it? Yeah. So, but yeah, doll sheep and caribou both open on the 10th. And in most cases, that will go through September, mm-hmm. um, sometimes into October. I know, I think the 40 mile her- hunt has ventured into October. Uh, before the 40 mile herd stayed open what was it two years ago all the way into like march yeah because you and i went out in february and it was still open well so they have the winter hunt Mm -hmm. um which are are two different registration tags so they have the fall hunt and the winter hunt yes um yes you're right and some in in most cases they'll take a break Mm -hmm. um in october and i believe Early November to kind of and then count opens, up, right? Yeah, right. They, well, they right. take a break to, to do a recount. September during moose season. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, they started doing that, didn't yes. they? Yeah. yeah, I forgot yes. about that. I think they just yes. started that a couple years ago. Yeah, um, yeah, because there was too much competition in the area. Too many people. Yeah. yeah. Now I believe isn't that just for one unit, or not one unit, but that one that zone? section up there? Um, I think it was just zone three. It was have that. been. I don't remember specifically. I mean, I'm sure. Yeah. We can yeah. figure it but out. But again, I, I don't know. It's check been the a regulations. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. But in most cases, yeah, your, your caribou hunting is going to take place uh, in the fall time, uh, yep. a little bit before moose season, and then yep. in many areas through moose season. Right. Um, another th- tricky thing about the regs is in certain units, you cannot hold a moose and a caribou tag. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you can only hold one or the other. In yep. some units, you can hold both. So yep. definitely keep an eye on that too mm-hmm. if you're in a new area. Yes. Um, and then in a lot of cases, in a lot of areas, there is a winter hunt as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah. And so that'll normally carry through into March, um, yeah. the end of March, typically, um, unless, you know, the bag limit gets, gets filled. Right, right. So, and so d- d- just for folks that aren't familiar with this particular management style, they have registration permits that are unlimited to acquire. Yes. So you can go online, get your registration permit or go into fish and game, get your permit. And then when you harvest a caribou, you have to report that kill within what? Is it like three days? uh, Three days Mm -hmm. of the kill. You have to call it in to the caribou hotline and tell them that you killed a caribou and then file a harvest report online. Mm -hmm. 
so that they can have as quick of a tally as to how many caribou are being killed in real time. Yeah. And then they have quotas that if they meet their quota by, let's just say, August 20th, mm -hmm. 10 days into season, then just like that, they shut it down yeah. and, it's, yeah. and it's over. Yeah. And then when they shut it down, they'll take a month or two off, reevaluate the herd, see how many are kind of left, see how many... Um, overkill there are mm -hmm. as much as we hate to think about it um we'll get into this here in a little bit but there is always more animals killed in the hunting season than there actually are tagged and reported whether that's poor shots and they just run off and die mm -hmm. um things like that do happen you know shoot throughs they kill two can uh, two caribou two animals and yep. they don't report the second one they don't harvest it or it runs off and dies somewhere they don't know about it however that happens they account for over harvest then they they do a reassessment and then they might open the winter hunt based off of the fall quota that was met. And if the fall quota wasn't met, then they can reopen the winter hunt and leave mm -hmm. that remaining one to be shot. And right. that's that's what the purpose of the registration hunts are. Harvest tickets, you don't have to report as quickly Correct. Yeah. as a registration permits. That's and this is just because they want to know as quickly as possible how many animals are being shot. Right. Because there's so many of them that get shot so fast. It's more of a reactive management right. system. Yeah. Right, exactly. And, and a lot of that depends on how close the herd comes to the roadways mm -hmm. and how the access is. You know, if the caribou hang out in, in a zone that's hard to get at, then not a lot of folks can get to them. Right. Yeah. You know, and it can be a lot more difficult of a hunt that way. Mm -hmm. but. And in a lot of cases, you'll see the the units that have a harvest ticket for caribou yeah. are those right. harder to get right. to ones right. because they're not worried about too many people going out there and right. slaughtering the herd because right. just not that many people are going to go through that much effort. Right. Where you're really going to see the registration and the subsistence tiers come in, your tier one, tier two hunts, right. um, is when um, it is road system access or right. fairly easy trail access. Right. And uh, if you're a non-resident and you see something that's labeled tier one, tier two, it's not for you. That's not for you. Um, right. That is for residents of that area. Mm -hmm. um, Alaska still has uh, subsistence hunting um, privileges mm -hmm. in certain areas if you live in an area. Um, now, some of the tier one hunts are pretty, pretty widespread. Mm -hmm. You know, you can get a tier one hunt even if you live in Fairbanks in some cases and some units. Um, in, in most cases, like... Uh, They've shut it down since due to emergency order, but uh, even residents of Fairbanks were able to apply for the Nilchina herd uh -huh. uh, tier one subsistence hunt. Now, if that sounds unfair, what that also does is when you say you want to go hunt a subsistence caribou from that herd, you are also limiting your moose mm -hmm. to hunting in that area as well. Mm -hmm. And so oftentimes um, they will equate your hunting opportunity as if you were Mm -hmm. part of that unit and, and right. the reason for that is there's just not a whole lot of people that live right. you know directly in that unit um, right. especially um it's it's a super widespread unit <laughs> i mean yes. i think 13 is probably one of the biggest ones mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. yep um yep and so there's a lot of area in there where you can subsistence hunt now they've had some pretty bad winters some pretty bad pred predation mm -hmm. um the numbers have plummeted I, I think the caribou migrated into a new uh wintering yes. ground too and got yes. mistaken for a different herd um, and, and that actually they've kind of pocketed out. I've I've heard yeah. some I've heard some recent information about new pockets of caribou mm -hmm. that have left the Nelchina herd area. Really, and that they are in a completely different area. And now, and, and this is all secondhand information, but from what I've been told, 
those little satellite groups, you know, a few hundred here, a few hundred there, those are gone from the Nelchina herd in the eyes of fish and game. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I'm going to do some more homework into this to verify it, and we'll, we'll, we'll definitely revisit this at some point. But to my knowledge, when, they, when those animals break off, they are now not considered a part of the main herd, so they don't get counted in that. Mm. So they count that as the main herd losing numbers, right? Right, so they, yeah. They looked at that, they looked at the predation, they looked at the harvest numbers over the years, and they looked at what's left mm-hmm. in, the, in the Nelchina traditional herd zone, Right, and they said, "Well, there's not enough of them, so they yeah. didn't give out any tags this year at all. Yep, not even subsistence permits, which does hurt. Oh, it hurts you know, a lot. Of I mean, folks. I, I don't hurt. I don't hunt that subsistence hunt, but I know that you know a lot of the people that live down there yeah. in, in those smaller communities they they don't have the same opportunities that everybody else mm-hmm. does as far as traveling around. Right, you know, those of right. us that live in Fairbanks or Anchorage area, yep. you know, we're able to jump in our trucks and go pretty much wherever we want. Yeah, six hours in any direction, and we're hundreds of miles from home, and we can yeah. hunt a totally different area. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when you when you're living in a more kind of limited area, mm-hmm. which as freeing as that can be, comes with its limitations of travel right. sometimes. Right. Um, and uh, you know, you know, those people really shouldn't have to. <laughs> drive six hours away i totally agree from their homesteads yeah. to be able to to hunt so i, I mean that does agree. hurt that they had to shut that down but you know it does go to show the management style of alaska mm-hmm. you know i mean they're right. they're only gonna allow tags for what they have a harvestable surplus of right so they, they are keeping a close eye on things and, and I, I as much as that that does hurt it, i applaud them for having the, the ability to do that yeah the, the strength to do that mm-hmm. um that kind of brings us to a our next point, pretty good, um, which is always double hunting the or double checking the hunt limitations. Mm-hmm. Um, like we just stated, the Nilchina herd got shut down for um, emergency order. Mm-hmm. Emergency orders are a thing that happen up here fairly frequently, mm-hmm. um, you especially know, with caribou. Especially with caribou, they right. are constantly doing checks and double checks and and kind of health updates on these herds Mm -hmm. and if something turns south they're gonna gonna shut it down quickly um several years ago with the nilchina herd when it kind of first started splitting apart like that um they they cut it down i believe they gave out i think it was two thousand draw tags um for that herd and after that winter had come through because you know you apply for your draw tags the year prior and then they go through the winter and then you you get your draw tags in the in the spring or I guess late winter yeah. here. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so then when they did their recount in the summertime, they realized how bad the population was getting. They cut it from 2,000 down to 250. And it was basically the, the first 250 that were taken. Season's over. Right. Um, and, and they'll do that with registration hunts too. Mm-hmm. You know, if they're, like you said, I mean, it's pretty much an unlimited um, amount of registration tags you can get. Mm-hmm. But there is a number, a maximum number they'll allow you to take out of that herd. Right. Um, so they might hand out 4,000 registration tags, but as soon as let's just say random number 2,500 are killed, Mm -hmm. now the hunt's closed, Mm -hmm. right? It is your responsibility as the hunter to keep up to date with that information. Right. Um, sometimes it's a little bit hard to do. Um, like in that case within the Gina herd, you know, I mean, you had 2000 people with tag. Mm-hmm. trying to be right. the first 250 to kill something. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody fully expected that hunt to be over in, in one weekend. Yeah. And there was a big controversy over whether they would shut the hunt down mid-weekend. Mm-hmm. You know, if everybody went out on Friday so, night, Friday night yeah. and Saturday morning and that 250 was made and reported, mm-hmm. would they shut it down Saturday afternoon and then all these guys that are out in the field 
that don't have internet, don't have cell phone mm-hmm. service, or that aren't like going to come back in until Sunday night. That, yeah, aren't planning on coming back in from their camp until you know Sunday night, or maybe they took some time off on Monday. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, how are they going to know? In, in some of those instances, the state will come out and say, for the first weekend, we're not going to shut it down. We'll do our count after that, and then make our decision. Mm-hmm. Um, but don't count on that. Right. right. Only rely on that if they specifically have told you that. Right. Um, because otherwise. It is 100% up to you, and in the state of Alaska, ignorance is not an excuse for anything. Right. Um, if you're breaking a regulation and you tell the, the trooper that, oh, I didn't know I couldn't do that. Doesn't, doesn't matter. Doesn't mean you're out yep. of trouble. Yep. Like, right. you should have known you couldn't right. do that. Right. Um, and the same goes for, for harvesting. You might have a legal tag in your pocket, but mm-hmm. if it's become illegal since the time you, you drove out on your wheeler, yeah. um, that's your responsibility to know. Didn't the 40-mile hotline for, for the 40-mile caribou herd have an, have a phone number that you could text on your inReach and then get an update I from the field? they did, yes. and I think that was if true. If that's still a thing, we yeah. might be able to, to... I'll look into that. To, I haven't yeah. heard about that, but... I, I believe you're right. I think there I was something of, about that. Yeah, I, I, I thought <laughs> that the last time I hunted that hunt, um, which would have been three or four years ago now, mm-hmm. um, in August, they, they had a way to communicate to you via your Garmin inReach. Right. Um, or, or for that matter, whatever satellite communication device that you had. That mm-hmm. way you could get fe- uh, field updates out of cell coverage right, yeah. um, while you were in the field to say, hey, it, I have caribou here. Can I shoot them? Basically, mm-hmm. you know, because, you know, for instance, if you go out opening weekend or, or say it's three weeks into season yeah. and the herd is only 150 animals away from meeting their quota. Well, everybody and their brother is out on that weekend and you're <laughs> planning to be out there from Thursday till Tuesday. Mm-hmm. And that herd is one road crossing away from meeting that quota. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Exactly. It, it's, it's one, um, how do I say this tactfully? It, it's it's one massacre. Vietnam. Yeah, it, it's <laughs> it, it's one massacre away from meeting that quota. Mm-hmm. Well, you're planning to be out there for four or five days. That yeah. could easily happen in the amount of time that you're out there. Right. Oh, absolutely. The hunt closes Sunday night via emergency order on the hotline, mm-hmm. and you're planning to hunt till Tuesday. Well, how do you know? You are responsible to know. Yeah, you have to know. solely responsible. So mm-hmm. usually, what I would do in that situation, I would just I, I would just text somebody on my inReach back in town, right. have them call the hotline, and then text me an update. Hey, they are letting uh, th- th- there are fifty animals left, mm-hmm. so you're still in the clear. And as long as the hotline says it's still open, yeah, you're still good to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and you'll notice when the updates start getting more frequent. Um, sometimes you'll call into that hotline, which. If you go and, and you do a really simple Google search, just search ADF and G, whatever the registration hunt you're, you're hunting, or really any hunt, and with the word hotline after it, mm-hmm. you'll find that number. It'll take you to the page on Alaska Fishing Games website. Mm-hmm. Um, and you'll be able to find that number and stay up to date. Um, and like you said, contacting somebody back in town is a great way of doing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but you'll notice... Like at the very beginning of the hunt, especially if they have a high number quota, yeah. like 2,000 or something like that, they might not update it for a week. Yeah. Maybe a week and a half. Yeah, exactly. Um, sometimes, heck, even more than that mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. if the numbers aren't rolling in. Mm-hmm. I mean, we saw it early last year with the 40-mile herd. I mean, nobody was getting caribou mm. in the early season um, yeah. because the, the, they migrated weird. Okay. Um, and so they weren't where everybody thought they were going to be, and then they had to go find them, basically. Yeah. Um, and so you didn't have that opening day slaughter, right. you know, that you were, right. everybody kind of expects, right. Um, out of that particular herd. And 
but then you'll see as the numbers start to grow, as they're doing their counts, as reports are coming in, you'll start seeing updates every three days mm-hmm. and every two days. Mm-hmm. And then that, you know, you really got to be checking these things. Don't, you know, just cause you checked it two days ago, doesn't mean, you know, you're, you're good to roll out for the right, weekend. Right. Like right. as you're rolling out of town, call that number, mm-hmm. like listen, it's just a recording. You yeah. know, you're going to listen to a, yep. maybe a two minute recording at most. They'll go mm-hmm. over the, the different areas, the different, um, numbers and they'll give you any updates um some things with the the caribou numbers mm-hmm. uh, the limits on these hunts will be specific to bull or cow mm-hmm. um in the instance of last year they were allowing a certain number of any caribou and then once a certain number of cows were shot then it went to any bull mm-hmm. um and so be sure you're checking on that too because yeah the the hunt might still be open but the regs might have changed as far as what you're allowed to shoot mm-hmm. So it's really, really important, especially if you're coming up as a non-resident DIY hunter mm-hmm. to be yeah. educated yeah. on, on the, the ever-changing <laughs> regulations that, that come right. through. Right. Um, and just making sure you are hunting in accordance with the law mm-hmm. because Alaska doesn't play. Yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when, when, you, when you violate the regs, I mean, it, it, it gets bad quick. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, yeah. yeah. Nobody to blame but you. Yep. So before we dive too much into hunting styles, I wanted to just say, and this might make me some friends, this might make me some enemies, but caribou hunting in this state tends to bring out the worst in people. Mm. Um, <laughs> it really, really does. In, um, in certain areas. In, in certain areas, yes. In certain easy-to-access areas. Yes. Um, and I just need to encourage people to not lose your sense conservation, your sense of... Ethics. Ethics, your sense of just being a nor- like a normal person, I would think. Right. But, you know, you go on some of these trails or roads. Yeah. And, I mean, you just see ash mm-hmm. everywhere. Yeah. You, you know, and it might be perfectly pristine and clean before season opens. As yep. soon as opening day comes around, you roll down there, there's toilet paper mm-hmm. everywhere. Mm-hmm. There's camp trash everywhere. Yep. Cans everywhere. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's just... Like the the whole concept of leave no trace just goes completely out the window as soon as caribou yeah. season opens. Right. And it's absolutely abysmal. It yeah. is horrible. And it, it it just it I don't know. I love caribou hunting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's the group I don't like being associated with though. Right. Um and it's not that hard. Mm-hmm. You know, trash bags don't cost very much. Right. Um, it's not that hard to, to pull it out because I know because I've pulled a lot of other people's trash out of the trails. So um, go for it. Just for a second here. We have a lot of folks that aren't from Alaska <laughs> and a lot of folks that are from Alaska that listen to the show that don't know what you're talking about. Okay. So allow me to attempt to flesh this out here. <laughs> okay. So Sorry if I ranted a little no, bit. No, no, no. no. And, and, and everything James just said is exactly right, mm. but I don't want folks to think that any caribou hunting area gets trashed That like is this. true. That is true. So this applies specifically to the 40-mile caribou herd, yeah. which mainly 
the, the vast majority of hunting for that herd takes place via the access of two roads. Taylor Highway out mm-hmm. by Toke, mm-hmm. which is out towards the Canadian border, and then also out the Stees Highway, which is accessed out of Fairbanks. And, and just to clarify, we're not spot burning anybody because no, that's widely known public information. <laughs> hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles. Yeah. This, this is just how folks access these right. regions right. Where, right. The, where, where, where the caribou come I through. Would, is there more people that hunt the Stees probably? By uh, far. I would yeah, say so. There's by a lot, far. More, so. a lot yeah. more access. Now, the Stees Highway is, is, is only like an hour and a half to two hour drive out of our town mm-hmm. to access. Therefore, we get a lot of just run out for an evening, go hunt, kill a caribou, run back into town, yep. even that same night. And I've done that before. Yeah, same here. What happens is because people know that the caribou are going to be near the road most of the time, they all go out there the day before opener mm-hmm. and they sleep in their trucks or they pitch a camp literally on the side of the road. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've seen tents pitched without exaggeration on the drivable surface. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a few years ago, I drove past somebody, and this was four or five years ago, and I've heard about it happening since then. There was a minivan parked in my lane of traffic, headed out there mm. with a great vantage point from the road, stopped in that lane of traffic, not even beginning to pull into the ditch. Mm-hmm. And they had the back hatch of the minivan open. And a whole canvas overhang tent <laughs> right there on the road. Yeah. It, it, it necked the traffic down to one lane right there. And yeah. there was a guardrail and a 100-foot drop-off on one side. I actually think I remember that. I think I drove past that. That kind of stuff happens all the time up there. Yeah. So that area gets a flood of people mm-hmm. on opening weekend. Mm-hmm. Okay. You have hundreds and hundreds. It, it's, it turns into a city. Yeah. Every pullout. And this is, I mean, and for folks that can't imagine this, every pullout has at minimum a hundred or more trucks in it. Yeah. And that is no exaggeration. It is a city. There are four-wheelers going in every direction, people getting out and guns waving everywhere and shots Mm -hmm. going off all around you. It is a war zone. Yeah. People go to the hospital every single year from negligent firearm use, Mm -hmm. and they shoot over a horizon, miss a caribou, or mm-hmm. shoot through one and shoot somebody else beyond it. Yeah. I know somebody that works at our local Fairbanks hospital, and last year she said, after I got home from, uh, from being gone most of the fall, um, thankfully I've missed out on that hunt for a few years now, <laughs> um, but she said that last fall on opening weekend, she had six or seven people come in with gunshot wounds from that hunt. None of them were, were, uh, were, were fatal, thankfully. Right. But Nonetheless, it's downright dangerous. Yeah. Well, so, so safety is just thrown out the window. Yeah. And it also becomes pretty difficult to even be safe with that many people around mm-hmm. you. You have to make sure that there is a hard stop hillside background behind yes. that animal before you pull the trigger. Right. So not only do you have all those people up there, safety goes out the window. A lot of these guys, and, and do not take this the wrong way, a lot of these guys are just uneducated. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And now if you, if you jump on like the 40 mile caribou hunting Facebook page, <laughs> a lot of the locals blame the military residents right. that come up here because, well, they don't know any better and they just think it's just like everybody goes deer hunting on opening day in Michigan and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> it's not all the military guys' fault. No. And then you have guys that 
just bring up whatever firearm they own. Mm -hmm. And this is a real life story here. Again, I can't emphasize this enough. This actually <laughs> happens. There, I, I, I watched a guy get out of his truck. I had shot a caribou a couple of miles off the road. I had ridden down to it. I'd shot it. I was quartering it out. One, one of my good hunting buddies was with me. This is the last time I ever did that hunt. And this was a number of years ago. Mm -hmm. But I looked up on the road because my, my buddy said, hey, there's somebody walking up there and they've got a gun. I pulled out my binoculars. I reached up there and I, I watched him. He had an AR with no scope on it. And there's a big old magazine hanging out the bottom of it. It was at minimum a 30 round mag, probably more than that. And there were two cow caribou that came running underneath of him with me on the other side of him. Mm. Down the hill, a mile and a half to two miles, but still yeah. right below those caribou. And all I can hear is the crack of the rifle mm -hmm. going and going and going and going. And those caribou were at minimum 400 yards away from this guy. Yeah. Open sights, mm -hmm. AR rifle, whether it was 5.56 or 308 or 7.62, whatever it was, mm -hmm. he was just dumping rounds at these caribou, hoping to hit one of them. Yeah. He shot one of them in the back leg in the knee joint. Its leg was just dangling and spinning as it was trying to run away. And then he shot and killed the other one. Mm -hmm. This particular year, you could shoot one caribou and he hit the other one. And it ran off, and I watched it bed down, and it died there later on that day. Yeah. When I was on my way out, I drove past it to go look, mm -hmm. and it was laying there dead. Yeah. So he irresponsibly harvested more than he was legally allowed to do. He put me at danger mm -hmm. by shooting in my direction, and th th that was not even close to the boundaries of ethics. Yeah. And I think what happens with the with that crowd mentality. Everybody feels like, well, I better just jump out and shoot one as soon right. as I can because I don't know if I'm going to get another one. Right. Right. And then along with that, like James was saying, the trash. Mm -hmm. People just think, well, everybody else is out here. Somebody else will grab it. Yeah. I'm in a hurry. I just killed a caribou. The bugs are mm -hmm. terrible. I'm cold. It's raining. Throw it in the bed of the truck and let's go. Yeah. And guys just leave. Mm -hmm. and, they, and they leave a campfire pit full of beer cans. And they leave mountain house wrappers, trash, and I mean, just all the garbage you can think yeah. of. I've seen guys drive off and so, leave their tents on the side of the hillsides <laughs> out there. It's, it is next level ridiculousness. Yeah. Now, that doesn't happen as much on the Taylor Highway because it's a lot farther away to it's get to. Away. It's a lot more work. And yeah. generally speaking, the folks that put in the effort to go out there are a little bit more responsible. I will say last year, because of the influx of people that went out, because that's where the, the caribou were hanging out earlier in the season. Okay. Um, they didn't migrate up to the Steese as early as everybody thought they would. Yeah. And I saw a lot about the Taylor Highway getting the exact same really? way. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So it's well, just, too it's just yeah. that, yeah. that group, right? You know, that, that, like you said, that crowd mentality. I've actually right. never done that hunt on the Steese in the summer. Yeah. I've done the winter hunt on the steeps. Mm -hmm. Right. Which is usually less guys. There's still oh, yeah. a lot. Always. But right. In the winter, I've been, you know, uh, I was with a buddy and he shot a caribou and uh, I started cutting up his caribou while he went to the truck to get the packs. And uh I get I'm get I was getting shot at by guys who thought that that dead caribou, you know, I I was behind it. Mm -hmm. So he didn't see me, but it was a dead caribou. <laughs> but they're just slinging lead and they're 600 yeah. yards away. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And Shooting then at you. Yeah. And you know, you jump up and wave your arms and they stop. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah. 
then, uh, <sighs> you know, and then next thing you know, a, a bunch of caribou come running up out of a draw. Mm-hmm. And they're just slinging lead at them. Yeah, just slinging lead irresponsibly. They have no idea. They're not aiming. You know, if the, you know, briefly. Now those caribou came by me, ran by me. I calculated distance. I took one shot and I dropped a caribou. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. It, which felt really good. When you've got a bunch of guys slinging lead and they can't hit nothing. And right. And you drop one. Right. But, <laughs> right. Um, but just just for the point, though, I, I don't want folks to think that this happens in every caribou hunt. And, no. And this yeah. is mainly the 40-mile caribou right. hunt. Right. And, and, and I do apologize if I seem to have attacked all caribou hunters. That was not my intention. Right. But specifically, right. yes, yeah. you're correct. This, this is just this hunt, very poignant for um, us. You know, it, it's, a, it's a hunt that happens close to our hometown. So yes. it's one we're very familiar with. Yes. Um, and, it, and it's one that I personally have heard two shots whiz by my head. Mm-hmm. Um, while being out there gutting out a caribou. Yeah. And I'm not talking about hearing the bang. Mm-hmm. I heard the zzz, Yep. The actual round. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I've seen that exact same thing where the, the caribou, because we'll get into this a little bit later about caribou behaviors, but, you know, they tend to run in circles when they don't know where to go. Mm-hmm. You know, they'll, they'll go up over a hill and then they'll come right back over that same hillside and then they just kind of run around yeah. and they're, they're just kind of, disorient figuring out yeah, yeah they're disorient right. and they're trying to figure out where to go right and especially when there's that many people they, they right. just you know oftentimes you'll have more than one chance at the same group right um but it's like nobody knows that right <laughs> it's like nobody right. and, and so there's this amazing like you know like you said we have to shoot now we have to right. shoot now and, right. and the whole concept of knowing what your target is and what's behind, what's beyond it yeah out of out of the picture yeah. Yeah. nobody caribou, nobody thinks doesn't it doesn't even matter pulling the trigger um yeah. And, you know, even just other basics that you would normally walk through 10 times before you ever pull the trigger, right? Yeah. Going through your basics, going through your ballistics, knowing where your bullet's going to land. Yeah. Several years ago, uh, my wife and I were up there and we were going in, getting ready to to hike in on this band that we had seen bedded down on a a hillside Mm -hmm. far off the road. Yeah. And I'd ranged them at 1,600 yards off the roadside. Oh, man. Um. So we were gearing up. We're getting ready. We're going to hike across this flats. We're going to go over there. Mm-hmm. And people saw us pulled off on the side of the road and pulled up behind us and started freehand shooting at those <laughs> caribou. Freehand shooting. Wow. So my only word is, if you're going on that hunt, remember your ethics. Mm-hmm. Remember your decency. Right be the outdoorsman that you know you yeah, should be. Yeah. Just yes. because there's a ton of people out there, is, that's no excuse to let those, those morals slide. Right. That's no excuse to just throw it to the wind and be like, ah, somebody else's problem. It, it's, right. it's hunters you know, it's, like we've described that are going to get a hunt like that or hunt many hunts in Alaska shut down. Right. Because yes. all it takes is that example and the wrong people getting a hold of it. Yeah. You know, and and putting it out there, just like the predator management article, mm-hmm. yeah, huge huge thing all over the states now. People are predator control in Alaska, yeah. right? All it's going to take is one military guy to get shot out there. Oh yeah, oh yeah. And the military gets a hold of it. Yep. And then it makes a paper, and then it makes the national news. You're right. And now all of a sudden we have the press knocking on the door of, yeah. hey, why is this hunt not safer? Why don't they make people wear orange? Yeah. And 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 I will say this from a lot of military guys that I know personally that go out there and hunt that. Mm-hmm. They do tend to be safety-minded as far as firearm safety. It's kind of drilled into you in the military. 
firearm safety is is a very big thing. Now, I'm not saying there's not particular ones that go out there and right. just act a fool because right. they think they can. Um, but I'm just going to say from my own anecdotal experience, mm-hmm. I, I've not noticed that. And so it, it does... I don't like pointing the finger at any one specific demographic of, right. of individual exactly. or background. Exactly. Um, I, I don't think that the fact that the military goes oh, up there and hunts is, <laughs> right. Yeah. I, <laughs> right. I don't, I don't think that's it. I think it's no. just whatever happens when that many people get in one group, it becomes mob mentality, right? Mob mentality, that yeah. kind of thing. And, and yeah. you've got to really fight to resist that. This isn't a deer drive, right? It kind of turns into one. It kind of turns into it, but that's not what it is. But now, I'm just going to say, to that point, just here a couple of days ago, at the time of this recording, I saw something where there is a hunter's education for Alaska hunting for military members in Fort Wainwright and Isleson for Mm -hmm. our local area to attend a hunter's ed meeting, Mm. specifically addressing the 40-mile caribou hunt and safety and ethics of it. Yeah. That is a step in the right direction. Yeah. Yeah. For all those guys, you know, and, and, you know, the, most of those guys are on a three year cycle. Mm-hmm. They come up here. If this is their first year, um, most of the time as a non resident, you have to wait a year as a new resident to the state to get your residency approved. Right. To yeah. then get tags over the counter like we do, like this one, mm-hmm. even for registration permit. However, they make an exception for caribou hunting. You only have to be in for a lot shorter time, and you can get signed off mm-hmm. that as long as you can prove that you are living locally here, then you can get a caribou permit well ahead of that year's mark. So you've got a lot of guys every year that are brand new to Alaska. Right. They really want to get out there and go hunting and get their feet wet, but they don't know anything about it. They don't know what kind of terrain they're getting in. They don't understand mm-hmm. how the animals dynamics works. They don't understand how to judge bull versus cow. They see antlers. Well, they're used to deer species in the lower 48. Mm. Does don't have antlers in the lower 48, <laughs> right? Yeah. So a caribou completely throws them for a loop. They, mm-hmm. they, how, how are they supposed to know if they don't read the regs, right? We're going to talk about it. Exactly. <laughs> and, and anyway, but yeah, but, just not, it, it, this is not a rant at any one particular group. I just right. think that when you get that many people with mm-hmm. that many animals, People just feel like, oh, I, I have to shoot one right now you yeah, know, or right. else they're going to be gone right. and then I'm going to lose my shot. Yeah. And it's not like that. It doesn't have to be like and, that. And the other thing before we move on, I want to say is we're not trying to discourage people from going on that hunt either. No. We're not trying to say it's a bad hunt to go on. You know, we're not trying to say, you know, stay away from this area. It's, right. you know. Because all of us um, have taken advantage of that. Right. It's, it's a very good opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you take anything away from this yeah. rant... Yeah, yeah. Just, you know, be courteous, keep your ethics in mind, and, you know, be part of that group that kind of holds that that value system in place. Right. You know, when you start seeing trash laying around, pick it up. Yeah. Right. You know, even if it's not yours, pick it up. Absolutely. And um, keep that area clean. Keep the you know, if if you see people beyond where the caribou are at, guess what? That's that's an unsafe shooting situation. You know, keep firearm safety in mind be that difference if you see somebody being unsafe say something yeah you know don't just stand there and watch as as they're firing in the direction of other people you know make sure they're aware that there's people down there yeah um because again i'm not pointing fingers saying everybody out there that's doing the stuff is even a bad person no i think they just get in this this crazed mindset right And, and so to to go on this hunt take advantage of the opportunity but but try to keep it within yeah. the bounds of, mm-hmm. yeah. of 
an ethical hunt. Yeah. Um, and, and that's that's where I'll leave that. Yeah. Now, I, I I would say something else, too, as far as your own personal safety, bring an orange vest. Yeah. On that, on that one, yeah. Wear an orange hunter's hat. Mm-hmm. And then when you shoot a caribou, what I usually do, if I'm in an area that has a lot of guys or happens to have a lot of guys in years past, I'll take off my orange vest and put it on the antlers. Mm-hmm. So that the guys, if they, you know, if they don't... Uh, if they don't practice safety and the first thing they look at that caribou through is their rifle scope, yeah, which often happens, mm-hmm. um, the first thing they notice is, oh, um, that's got an orange vest on his head and there's a dude standing there. Yeah. You know, make make it obvious that the caribou's dead. He's yeah. got an orange vest on his head. Right. And then, oh, there's a guy wearing an orange hat. Yeah. Right? So just take some proactive measures for safety as well. Yeah. And for the record, I have seen people out there doing safety checks on people. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I've seen guys that are going in straight drill sergeant ballistic mode oh, when people I've, are being unsafe i've and, informed and, a few guys of their safety yeah, practices and, and yeah. to those of you out there doing that i applaud you yeah and, and we need more like you out there <laughs> so <laughs> absolutely um but on the topic of being ethical on these hunts mm-hmm. when you know the regs when you know what you're allowed to shoot yeah whether it's bull or cow mm-hmm. specifically we'll just stick with caribou mm-hmm. how do you tell the difference like you said, a lot of guys, especially if they're from the lower 48, coming up here for a DIY hunt, mm-hmm. you're responsible for knowing that. Mm-hmm. You know, a caribou is not one you need necessarily need a guide for. A right. lot of people do come up and, and use a guide for it, mm-hmm. but you don't need to. So right. when you're out there with just you and let's say your brother or your buddy, you got to be able to tell the difference. Yep. Um, Absolutely. And there's a couple of, of key ways to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, one, if you're in a really good area, um, which most people, I think, coming up here for like a dedicated DIY hunt, mm-hmm. know where they're headed. They know mm-hmm. what they're, you know, they're going to these areas that are a little harder to get to. I yeah. think they're, they're kind of doing that more wilderness hunt. Um, a lot of them are flying out. A lot, Yeah, flying out. Um, which is awesome. <laughs> it is, yeah. <laughs> um, you'll be able to, in a really good area, a good herd with good genetics and good health, you'll notice a pretty stark difference between the antlers yes. of bulls and cows. Yes. Um, I'm not saying use that as an as a, a end-all, be-all, mm-hmm. but it's a good indicator because cows' antlers can get big, but they look spindly. Yes. You know, mm-hmm. they, they look thin. They're not, they're not these big, giant... They don't pollinate. Yeah, they, they're no, no pollination at the end. Um, they don't no have shovels. Shovels, right. Um, right. And they just don't get that, that density. Right. You know, they're, they're, right. I mean, you look at a bull caribou's antlers, mm-hmm. a, a big, nice, mature bull, mm-hmm. not, a, not a yearling, not a, not a two-year-old, but like a mature bull. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, they're just... Baseball bats. Dense. Yeah, yeah, they're baseball bats. Um, yeah. A cow's antlers are never going to quite reach that. Right. Um, they're going to look more like a, <laughs> I don't know, like a leafless bush almost. Right. Like they're, yeah. they're you know, yeah, just, kind of, you just like twigs, yeah. you know, yep. sticking up off the top a of the head. dead sticks, yeah. Yeah, yes. dead sticks, yeah. Yes. Um, Especially after they shed their velvet. I mean, they are really, really spindly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Nice pair of salad tongs. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah. 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 Basically. Right, yeah. yeah. Um, now, not to say they're not going to, you know, fan out a little bit, but I mean, you're, you're going to notice the difference. If you go on Google and you just look at pictures of caribou, you'll notice exactly what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. They just look more fragile. And, and, um, and, and as far as size goes, I mean, a, a, a fully mature 
cow's antlers are only going to get up to what maybe 20 inches something yeah probably probably between 16 and 20 inches or so yeah where uh, and and again no bezes well uh, yeah kind of but no shovels Mm -hmm. no palmation that they don't kind of curve up at the top as they grow Mm -hmm. right they don't have back scratchers on them Mm -hmm. there are just distinguishing characteristics and for a trophy hunt you're not even going to be looking at that size of antlers anyway, so it doesn't matter. If a caribou has big antlers, mm-hmm. it's a bull. Right. Absolutely. So. Yeah, yeah. You can, you can know the difference pretty easily just by that alone. But there are other distinguishing factors. Yes. Um, one is, obviously, if you're close enough to shoot and you have good optics, mm-hmm. um, you can probably notice the rep- reproductive organs mm-hmm. of the animal. Um, yeah. If it's a good mature bull and you're looking at it from the broadside, you'll see it hanging. Yep. Um, yep. <laughs> you know, and if it's a cow, you won't. Yep. So, yep. Um, so there is that. And then the other thing is if it's walking away from you, mm-hmm. um, the rump patch yes. on females tends to be a lot wider. Yes. Um, the rump patch on a male is going to be a lot more um, just towards the inner part of the legs, kind of mm-hmm. going up right below the tail. Mm-hmm. Um, not quite as as yep. wide. Yeah, females' white patches kind of extends over about halfway out on their hips. Right. And yeah. It's it, it's it's almost like a little heart shape, but it's it it covers more um, square inches of their posterior than the bulls do. There's just more white there on the females. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so once you and, and again, we've talked about this, and I believe it was the How to Hunt Alaska series we did. Like I think so. A while yeah. back now. Yep. Um, and, and we touched on it then too, but. You know, the, the most important thing you can do when, when you're trying to learn the legality of animals mm-hmm. and differentiating between male and female and things like that is just familiarization. Mm-hmm. Yes. Look at pictures. YouTube Google, videos. Yeah, YouTube videos, Google yep. images. It's all great, a great resource. I mean, with the internet, you have basically unlimited images that you can test yourself. You know, you can have your buddies download a bunch of pictures mm-hmm. where they know the answers and then you know, show the pictures to you without the, the captions of, you know, bull caribou or, or, right. or cow caribou. Right. And just make sure 100% that you can tell the difference because mm-hmm. that is, again, not something you want to mess up <laughs> on your hunt. Exactly. Right. That is a big no-no. So they will, they will throw the book at you if you, if you mess that up. So yes. um, definitely, definitely understand the difference there. Yeah. Um, I think Fish and Game actually has, well, I, I, I know for sure that in the regs, they have a, um, a couple of little illustration photos do, yep. kind mm-hmm. of distinguishing those characteristics that we spoke to. I thought at one point um, they had a little YouTube video, it, it, a bull or cow caribou. I, I don't see it on YouTube right now, just kind of looking here. Mm. Um, they have one that's listed as uh, virtual presentation, caribou across the last frontier, and that was posted two years ago. I don't know if that has the information in there. They also have Alaskans afield, big game hunting for new hunters. That's mm-hmm. also a fishing game um, YouTube. It's like big game hunting 101, and it's like an hour-long presentation video. Stuff like that is going to be really informative. That comes mm-hmm. right from the horse's mouth. That yeah. is fishing game themselves. Yep. And then also, like I said, in the regs, it has bull versus cow characteristics. Mm-hmm. Describes all the things that we just talked mm-hmm. about. That's that, that's that's probably where I would say to start. 
Yeah. And then go watch some YouTube videos and, and look at a bunch of caribou trophy photos and, and look at those di- uh, distinguishing characteristics. So right. If you go to Alaska Department of Fish and Game website and you go to the caribou section, there's like a big game species and you just click on caribou and you go to more resources, mm. there's a bull or cow link and that is a nice PDF of it's Perfect. several pages that goes through. It's got lots of pictures and it's got arrows mm-hmm. saying, this is a bull, this is a cow. These are the things you can see. Nice. Um, yeah. On each of them. And yeah. the, the biggest, um, the biggest time frame that it's hard to distinguish is those young bulls. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, young bulls can look like cows mm-hmm. in, in many cases. Now, again, if you're, if you're coming up and you're doing, a float in somewhere or a mm-hmm. fly in somewhere or, you know, somewhere where you're getting a little bit more remote and they have really good genetics in the herd and they've had yeah. a chance to grow. You're going to find good, big, mature bulls. Yeah. Um, yep. You're going to find what you're after. Um, where a lot of people struggle is like with the 40 mile herd. Yeah. Because so many people hunt it. Um, and due to other factors as well, there's just not the genetics for like those massive bulls. You can get them every once in oh, a while. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen some pretty good looking bulls come out of that herd, but just typically speaking, I would mm-hmm. say a lot of them don't tend to be those, those big, you know, right. king, kingly right. looking you right. Know, right. Right. caribou. Right. Um, and when you get into those like two year old bulls, they don't have those big antlers yet. And so if you're in an area where it's a bull only, yeah. you know, and you're in a herd like that, like the 40 mile mm-hmm. where they just sometimes don't get that big. Um, you really got to pay attention to those other factors that we talked about with mm-hmm. the the reproductive systems and the the rump patches and things like that. Mm-hmm. Really pay attention. If that's the only bull you you've seen that day, or that's the one you you're choosing to go home with, verify, <laughs> verify, mm-hmm. verify. Yeah, you know, it, you know, we've talked about this several times on the show, but you are the only person responsible when you are the one pulling the trigger. Yeah, doesn't matter what your buddy said. Yeah, your buddy sitting right next to you can be like, no, it's it's a bull. Trust me, it's a bull. Trust me. No. Nope. If it's not, he's not the one getting in trouble. If right. you don't know for yourself, then you shouldn't be shooting. Exactly. It. Period. End of story. Yeah. Um, something else I would say too is body size. Those mm. two or three year old bulls haven't gotten as big of a body that they've grown into right. like the five, six, seven, eight year old bulls will. Mm-hmm. A monster caribou bull can weigh up to 500 pounds. That's a really big caribou. Yeah. But the cows don't weigh, I mean, usually less than half that usually. Um, But those young bulls are going to be a lot closer to cow size bodies as well, which makes it difficult. Yeah. A big bull is going to look massive Mm -hmm. next to even a full grown mature cow. Right. But if you have small bulls mixed in Mm -hmm. with average adult cows, just off body size and antler size, you're not going to be able to tell much of a difference. Exactly. Just, and, and caribou move. They're constantly <laughs> moving. They hardly ever stand still. Yeah. Um, which makes it exciting, and it's always different, and there's always that element of a moving target sometimes, mm-hmm. um, unless you catch them bedded, which is a really good way to hunt them like that. Find yep. them when they're bedded and then make a move on them. Yep. Um, but when they're kind of intermingling in, in a herd group like that, um, and sometimes you'll find a group of 10, sometimes you'll find a group of 300 yeah. together. And it's, it, it's, it's awesome to see that many animals. It, it really is something special to see that many animals mm-hmm. all together at the same time. Yeah. We don't see that many moose hanging out together. We don't see sheep in that number. Mm-hmm. We don't hunt bears in that number. 
I mean, it, 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 it's it's really the only animal like it that's that many animals right. in a herd group like that. Right. It's, yeah. it's really something that's it's neat to experience that. But if there isn't a distinguishably big bull in that group mm-hmm. that's body size is bigger and he has big antlers and it's just easy. Oh, obviously that's a bull. Mm-hmm. Then that can make your job a little bit more difficult. Now, a lot of times too, just for folks that might not know, with caribou, those big bulls. Say you have a migration herd and the herd is stretched out over a hundred miles. The first group of caribou, the, the first seventy-five percent of that herd that comes through is all going to be medium bulls, some mm-hmm. good ones sprinkled in there, but all the big guys are in the back of the line. Yeah. Because they want all the cows and the young guys to have to get whacked by wolves and bears first. Right. And the big guys stay in the back of the line. Mm-hmm. So as the herd progresses through. If you've got a big group that's kind of funneling past you in a valley and you're looking for a, for a specially big bull, yeah. wait till the end. Yep. You might really regret it if you pop one halfway through and you just get impatient and you shoot what you think is a nice bull and then a, just a stud comes by 10 minutes later and yep. you go, oh man, now I'm disappointed <laughs> and all I can do is take a picture of that one. And yep. that's, that's kind of a disappointing and, feeling. And book another hunt. Well, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Or or let your friend shoot the big one, which I did the last time I was up there on the, on the 40 mile hunt. I was with Remy and I shot a bull and then, um, we spotted two more that were bedded a long ways away and we made a move on them, sneaked in and I had already tagged mine and it was, it it was a average, you know, small bull. It was nothing, nothing special, not, not big antlers at all. Yeah. But it was only one that we'd had a crack at all day. And so I thought, well, feast or famine, I want to shoot something for meat. Mm-hmm. But then we spotted two really nice bulls bedded <laughs> way back in there somewhere. We went over there and stalked into real close, and he shot one with my rifle, of all things. And Because <laughs> uh, he had brought his bow, and I said, okay, gotcha. yeah. I said well, and, and he put a stalk on him with his bow, and he got into like 70 yards, and they busted him. Mm. And uh, he, he nearly had him w- yeah. with his bow. And then they jumped up. He came running back to me. They circled around, just like you said, came running yeah. right back in to look at us, and he shot it with my rifle. Nice. So, yeah. <laughs> Case in point, sometimes patience pays off, yeah. especially with caribou. Wait till the back of the line. I've got a picture here of uh, three caribou and Dalton in the background. Mm. Okay. We, were, <laughs> yeah. we were talking about this hunt before we uh, started this podcast. We started recording, but there's uh, two cows and a bull in this picture mm-hmm. laying dead on the ground. Yeah. Remember that? Yep. And there's no way from the picture you can tell which is which. Right. Oh, yeah. The the bull is slightly bigger and has slightly bigger antlers. But I'm going to post this on Instagram. And so it'll be, you know, week old mm-hmm. when this podcast comes out. But, you know, it's an example. When they're laying down on the ground, unless they've got a real you know, yeah. big set of antlers, there's almost no way to tell. Unless they're that really, really right. trophy-sized, right. exactly. mature bull. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, Which is what most people, I think, are chasing when they come up here after a we'll caribou. I mean, you, nobody wants to come up here and shoot a spindly little two-year-old. Right. If you Google so, caribou... Can I see that picture really quick? If you Google caribou, um, it, it, it looks like pretty much all bulls is about what comes up for the yeah. most part. <laughs> there's a few... Oh, there's a moose, huh? Um... There's a few cows, obviously, or, mm-hmm. or ones that could be small bulls, but for the most part, it's just, you know, bigger bulls. That right, at, right, right. Did I shoot the bull on that trip? No, I did. You did? Yeah. That's the one in the foreground there? The, uh, yeah, the front one is the bull. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, now you, you shot the one in the back. 
Yeah. Well, you, know, you shot the one at the back closest to you. I did. It yep. had that weird growth yep. on it. Yes. Yeah. Now, if you look at this picture, folks, you'll see this like eight inch growth hanging off the rear end of the one that Dalton shot. Yes. Hmm. I forgot all about that. Yeah. It, it was like a big tumor and it, it was really? it was a hard sack that had grown off one of the hind quarters. It was about the size of a watermelon. Yeah. Did it look, look like maybe from fighting or something? Or I cut it open and that one was a was an any caribou tag and this yeah. was in the middle of winter. It was like the coal hunt or something. I think it was. That's when you had to turn in the bottom part of the jaw. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, yep, yeah. That, that was the year that they were trying to take out a bunch of animals from the herd, and they opened the winter hunt. I hadn't hunted it in the fall, um, or, or, or maybe I had, and they said that you could shoot two in the winter if you hadn't killed one in the fall. Right, But yeah. you could shoot one in the winter if you'd already killed one in the fall. I so I, I was, could only yeah. shoot one. Mm -hmm. um, but I shot that cow um, because, it, well, case in point, it was... February or January when we shot those? I don't even remember. Let me look at the picture. It, it, it was definitely after New Year's at some point. Right. It, it was either January or February. But um, it, in that group that we came on to, it was my brother and I and Mariah. Mm -hmm. And um, th by that point, all of the big bulls had shed their antlers mm -hmm. long since. So, that, so the only ones that had antlers still were the cows. And then a couple of real small bulls, like the one that Mariah shot, mm -hmm. that for some reason hadn't dropped his headgear yet. And, and, and those antlers weren't much bigger than a cow's antlers. Yeah. But again, uh, sex didn't matter it, because it, it was an any caribou hunt, right? Mm -hmm. right? Um, but I shot a cow and we, we, we went up to it. And yeah, it had like a big watermelon-sized growth on its back leg. After we field dressed it, you know, I, I, I cut it off. And it wasn't it wasn't attached to the meat. It was just attached it was to just off the hide. Yeah, it was just a growth on the Interesting. hide. And uh, I I cut it off, and then I cut it open after I was done cutting on the meat, so right. that my knife wasn't tainted at that point in yeah. case it was nasty. And it was like a white, like a it it, it looked like a a huge gland almost. Oh, it, like was a, it was really almost like strange. a really hard fat. Yeah, so, yeah, it it was white, and it it looked kind of fatty. Hmm. Um, yeah, it, it was, I've never seen anything like it before. Didn't it have like so, a real pale yellowish color to I it? I know that some kind of, I know sometimes they have it, the issues with those, those burrowing. It, it could have been an infection yeah, like could that. Could be an infection but, from that or something like yeah, that. I, I'm not sure what happened. But, yeah. Well, and the whole outside of it was covered in hair. Like yeah. The rest oh of yeah. Hair, but yeah. It, it was grown over. Yeah. But I, I, I talked to somebody about it and they said it was some kind of a tumor or something hmm. like that. And that. As long as the meat didn't smell funny or have any weird colors in it, which right. it didn't, um, we ate it, no problem. Haven't you know? Nice. Never got sick from it, no problem. I, we've long since finished eating that caribou. Yeah, um, but yeah, I I forgot all about that until I just saw that picture. Yep. And and for those of you wondering what Dalton was talking about, um, since the males and females both have headgear, um, if you are adventurous enough to go out on a winter hunt for these things, which mm -hmm. It's really cold, <laughs> but, oh, yeah. but they're they're still out there moving was it around. Like Twenty below on that hunt, something like yeah. that. Um, yeah, it warmed up during the day, but it was cold yeah. when we went out. But yeah. later in the year, like that, um, after the New Year's, most of the bulls will have dropped their headgear already, mm -hmm. um, and the cows retain them longer. Um, and and there's a, a couple different theories for that. Um, one is to fend off predators mm -hmm. because they're pregnant at that point and right. that makes the bulls an easier target than the pregnant cows 
Um, but the other is to dig up food, mm-hmm. you know, for them to be able to kind of use those to dig to through the dig snow, through and, the the snow and break right. up the ice and things like that to right. get to food easier to keep themselves nourished Correct. through that pregnancy. Right. Um, so if you are finding yourself on a caribou hunt in February, you mm-hmm. know, late January, something like that, and all you're seeing is little, little antlers running around, um, the ones without headgear are the bulls mm-hmm. um, at that point in the winter. The, the cows won't drop them until closer towards spring. Yeah. So yep. uh, once basically breakups right around the corner. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Well, let's take a quick break one more time and then we'll jump into uh, hunting tactics. All righty. All right, folks. We all know that one of the most common mishaps in hunting is damage to your rifle scope. Last year, I found the solution to that problem with the Stealthy Hunter rifle cover. It wraps around your scope and action securely to protect it from getting knocked off of zero or even severely damaged. Stealthy Hunter also has a glassing pad and a wide variety of supplements for the outdoorsman, such as protein powder, CBD products, turmeric, and gut health supplements. They also make a lightweight trauma kit weighing in at just 14 ounces that includes everything you need and nothing you don't for all of your backcountry medical emergencies. To shop all of their equipment and supplements, go to stealthyhunter.com and enter the discount code at checkout, The Northern Hunter, to save on your order today. All Stealthy Hunter equipment is proudly made in the USA. Everybody knows that one of the most important pieces of a hunter's kit is their knife. Whether you're looking for a fleshing blade, a skinning blade, or just a quality, multi-purpose knife for the backcountry, Yukon River Knives has what you need. They offer blades such as the Hunter, Small Game, and the Sendero Bush Knife. Yukon River Knives is based in Texas and has a unique mission goal in that a percentage of all knife sales go to support a missionary in Alaska. Now Dalton, you've experienced with these knives in the field. Talk to us about that. As a matter of fact, I have used a few of their knives and watched my good friend Remy use them for years with great results. They have a micarta handle that doesn't get slippery when it gets wet, and they have phenomenal edge retention for long skinning jobs. Go check out our web link on thenorthernhunter.com and that'll take you directly to Yukon River Knives website to see their full selection and order your knives for your next hunt with the discount code THENORTHERNHUNTER at checkout. And remember, nothing replaces a quality hunting knife. All right, so hunting methods for caribou are going to consist of two types, primarily, Mm -hmm. depending on which units you're hunting in. Yeah. If you are north of the Yukon Bridge and inside that corridor, you're primarily going to be bow hunting. Well, well, you're only, only going to be pro <laughs> yeah, bow hunting yeah. there. The reason I say primarily is because if you are in very good shape and very adventurous and you do venture more than five miles off the road, mm-hmm. then you can use a rifle out there. Now, how, how big I don't is, know anybody that does. Oh, I, I do. <laughs> I, I know a couple do, yeah. people that have tried yeah. unsuccessfully. <laughs> I know quite a few um, folks that have hacked it, but have, explain, okay. explain what the corridor is. So the corridor, so it, uh, once you get up north of the Yukon River Bridge, um, off the Dalton Highway, there is a corridor off five miles either direction of the road. Mm-hmm. Now, it's not five miles total. That's 10 miles total mm-hmm. either direction. Um, so inside that corridor, you are only allowed to use archery, bow and arrow. 
Mm-hmm. Um, a big reason for that is it's a very heavily trafficked road. It's also fairly easy access, and they don't want people just running up there with guns, mm-hmm. kind of <laughs> doing what they do, what we just talked about in other areas of the state. Right. Um, and so if you are able to get through that, which can be challenging, mm-hmm. very challenging, um, and you're on that other side of the five-mile corridor, then mm-hmm. you are allowed to use rifles. And a lot of mm-hmm. guys will get through that yep. um, to do, well, I guess back in the day to do sheep hunting and stuff like that in certain parts. Um, now that that's all now closed. That that's all closed. Yeah, I guess that's kind of a non-factor. Yeah. Um, but for the caribou up there, you know, if you're looking at going up there, especially as a non-resident DIY, that's you're probably just going to be up there bow hunting. Yes. Um, and so, but if you're in, in north or south of the bridge, Mm-hmm. rifles allowed mm-hmm. pert near everywhere mm-hmm. yep. um yep and so there are several different methods that you can do to get close to caribou um to get in on that shot and to figure out where they are and where they're going to be because that's the hard part with caribou mm-hmm. as you pointed out dalton earlier in the show they move yeah and they don't ever hardly stand still no even when they're in one area they're mm-hmm. going to be kind of just kind of milling around milling around in yeah. that area and they'll go if they're in this big bowl they'll go to one side and then they'll go to the other side and yep. you know you, you'll be able to see them the whole time but yep. they're not hardly ever just standing still unless they're bedding down somewhere mm-hmm. and just when you think they're going to head your way you go over the mountain <laughs> right <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> that's a fact now if you're going out on a wheeler um there's a lot of people that have the tendency in the thought process that they're going to run down the caribou. Which is illegal. Which, okay, the way I worded that is illegal. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> okay, you cannot actually run down the caribou. What I, what I was meaning to, intending to say there is, you know, they're going to find the caribou yeah. and then basically position themselves close enough to the caribou with the wheeler. Right. Just jump off, shut the machine off, and start blasting. Right. That has the potential to work, but it is very low odds. Mm-hmm. Um, they're going to hear you coming. <laughs> You're going to spook them. Um, and the thing is, caribou, like you just pointed out, Mo, mm-hmm. they're sporadic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and they'll go where you can't take a wheeler. Um, I guess another good thing to point out with the regs is to make sure whatever trail you're on, if you are wheeler hunting, that... Um, there's sections of state land and mm-hmm. now I believe we were talking all BLM land. Yes. You are not allowed to take a motorized vehicle off trail. That, so that's, even that's for the white mountains for the white mountains, range, which, yeah. which is off the Steez highway right. access point. Um, you are not allowed to take your wheeler off that, that designated trail system. You mm-hmm. can ride on it, but if mm-hmm. the caribou are off to the side, you're not allowed to just run across the tundra even if you shoot one a hundred yards off the trail right you gotta pick it up and carry the meat back to the wheeler turn around and head back out you're not allowed to even you can't even ride 20 yards off that trail right you will get written up and there will be guys out there in helicopters with a (laughs) pocket full of tickets with your name on them yeah if you break the law (laughs) they're going to be all too happy to start writing you up yeah And, and a lot of that is due to people that have gone out there and done just that and they tear up the the landscape they yep. tear up the the tundra and everything and they leave huge ruts everywhere they're out there um, in big side by sides with 33 inch tires yeah, and mud and, rigs and, and just and it, tearing it, it up yeah and, and so to avoid that they have since in, 
put in rules and laws that says you have to stay on the trail. Mm-hmm. Um, so one thing that I found with caribou mm-hmm. over my years of watching them is they are sporadic and there are a lot of areas they'll go, but they are also creatures of habit. Mm-hmm. Um, caribou will oftentimes, not in, in, in a small region, but when they are moving from one area to another, they will oftentimes use the exact same trail time after time after time. And you can see these trails in the mountainsides, in the hillsides, right. through the valleys. They, I mean, they look like the most beaten down game trails you've ever seen in your life because they are. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one of the best things to do when you're, when you're out there, especially if you're wheeling around, or even if you're walking around and you see a, a band of caribou, mm-hmm. When you see the direction they tend to be heading, and they're not spooked, they're not going to be running just blatantly across a the hillside. They're just yeah. mo- moving from one area to another. Right. Look for those trails. Mm-hmm. That's the biggest thing I'll tell somebody. Look for those those game trails there. Yeah. Because that's a good indicator of where they're going to funnel. Now, mm-hmm. the hard part is sometimes there's three of them going up. You know, three different trails. Yeah. Distinct trails going up. A hill and it depends on whether they want to go one side the other side right over the top um and that's kind of a game of chance and a game of of your educated guessing right you know um if you're patient enough you can probably see which one they're going to take um but a lot of times it's far enough away you kind of got to make a decision mm-hmm. and just try to go yep that is a lot better option than trying to get too close on your wheeler mm-hmm. and ruin any chance you had of getting a good ethical shot because as soon as you get too close to them they freak out Mm -hmm. and they take off running yeah and (laughs) there's no way of knowing how far they're going to go well and even if they don't take off running they're going to start kind of rummaging in circles Mm -hmm. yeah they're they're not going to be sitting there just grazing anymore Mm -hmm. they're not going to be sitting you know standing and moving because even when they're eating they're still walking Mm -hmm. in most cases yep they're they're just walking a little bit slowly yep um, if you spook them with the sound of that wheeler, they're not going to be doing that. Mm-hmm. They're going to be kind of jogging back and forth, even if yeah. they don't spook and actually run over the hill. Yeah. And the chance of getting not only a good clean shot, but being able to identify right. which one you want to get a good clean shot on becomes right. infinitely harder. Right. Because now, especially if you're in a unit that has these smaller bulls and you're mm-hmm. trying to identify the smaller bull among the cows and they're all moving in big circles. Yep. The second you come off your binos to get on your rifle scope, now you've lost it, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and so that can be a really big disservice to yourself. Yeah. Right. I will say, uh, when it comes to hunting caribou, moving in on them with the ATV or on foot, uh, especially the 40-mile herd, mm-hmm. the 40-mile hunt, because that's by far the most popular hunt, Yeah, um, is, you know, a lot of times you'll find yourself in a position and the caribou are moving towards you because another group of hunters has mm-hmm. spooked them that way. Right. Which is great. Good for you. But if you t- jump up and start running, <laughs> they're going to do the same thing to you. Right. And what they're going to do is they're going to start moving away from everybody. Right. right? You know, mm-hmm. so the best thing to do in that situation is to lay down, mm-hmm. you know, or just make yourself stop moving. Caribou, my experience anyway, is caribou tend to not spook at anything that's not moving. Yeah. Now, if you're up on the North Slope, it's a little different, you know, mm-hmm. off the whole road, because everything's right. flat up there. Right. So something's yeah. standing out like a sore thumb, well... You know, unless yeah. you're by, if you're by a rock, you know, you've got a chance there, but just don't move. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the same thing works for a lot of game animals. Yeah. Just, <laughs> you just stand perfectly still and it's like you're invisible. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. This is, if they, especially if they don't know exactly what you are mm-hmm. at that distance. So, yeah. Um, 
One method I've seen people use as far as those trails go is to just camp out on one. Mm-hmm. Um, if you don't have a wheeler, or you don't have the energy to hike around and look for them. Um, I will say that's a, <laughs> that's kind of a, a hard sale for me. Yeah. Because there is a very good possibility that if you sit on one of those trails and set an ambush for them, that eventually a band of caribou is going to walk by. Um, but that's a big if. There's yeah. a lot of country in this, in, in, in this area, mm-hmm. um, in, in the entire state. You know, caribou, they'll move, I mean, heck, what, 30 miles a day sometimes? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and so to, to put yourself in a position, I, I've seen most people do that when they maybe don't have motorized access and they're going up to, let's just say, you know, we'll, we'll just keep using the 40-mile herd as, as an example. Okay going up off the steeps and they just plan on being up there for three days or something like that. Mm-hmm. They'll take out some lawn chairs or they'll take out some, you know, camp equipment and they'll literally set up to where they are, um, out on, on these trails and they'll just watch them and they'll wait until a band runs by. And then at that point they start trying to figure out which one they want to shoot. If they want to shoot any out of that particular band, the problem there is sometimes you only get five or six that run by. Sometimes you'll get a lot, mm-hmm. but it, I have found if, if you kind of merge the two where you are very mobile, yeah. but you're also very mm-hmm. aware of the paths that these caribou take, right. that gives you your best, your best odds. Yeah. I, I would say the problem is if you don't have a wheeler and you're hunting in an area where there is motorized, mm-hmm. uh, motorized access, where <laughs> there is motorized access, um, the problem that you're going to run into is even if you're on an established game trail where mm-hmm. you think they're going to come down and they would, if there was nobody else around, right. Everybody else is going to be riding past you and all around you. Right. And, and as most odds, said, chasing them around, right? Yeah. Your odds get a lot lower because the guys are going to be out there pushing them every which right. way on their, right. on their wheelers and essentially just keeping them away from you mm. inadvertently because they're out there hunting them farther away from the road. So the caribou are going to tend to stay farther away from the road as right. the hunt goes on. So that, that's, it, it's probably less than a 50% chance, probably even less than 30% that that's going to happen. Right. Unless you get a significant ways off the road on foot. Mm-hmm. And uh, which I, people I, do. I would say my advice would be if you don't have a wheeler, pick a spot where somebody can't ride, mm-hmm. pick a really steep spot. Pick a brushy, treed-in yeah. spot that's yeah. steep that nobody's riding in there, and that's where the caribou are going to go when they get pushed. <laughs> yeah, right. It's not rocket science. I'm not giving away hot tips here. This no. is just using your brain. Mm-hmm. And I've killed caribou up up there in that area doing exactly that. Right. Without a four wheeler. Yeah. Just walk into a hard to get to spot where nobody can get a four wheeler and just wait, and mm-hmm. people will push them right to you. Yeah. Now. With that in mind, like we mentioned earlier, if a group pushes caribou to you, make sure that you're not shooting back in their direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. is That's, a big thing. Again, safety always at the top of the list here. Which, and again, legally, they shouldn't be chasing the caribou right. <laughs> so with it, their it, wheelers. It, that it, is it illegal. Is, it is illegal to herd game with a motorized vehicle is, yes. or pursue or directly pursue fleeing game. Right. You can use your machine to reposition for mm-hmm. another chance, but you can't directly just run them down or herd them to somebody right. else with right. a motorized vehicle. Yeah, you're not allowed to push them with your wheeler. Right. Now, where the sitting and waiting method might work a little better mm-hmm. is if you're in, say, a non-motorized area mm-hmm. or on a fly-in hunt. Mm-hmm. You know, what I, 
a lot of those places, if, if you've never been to Alaska before, you can get a pretty good vantage point yeah. where you'll see a lot of these, these trails kind of come in and out of, of a valley and in and out of mm-hmm. these hills and mountains. Yep. And I mean, it's amazing when, when you actually learn to recognize what you're looking at. Yeah. I mean, when I, when I say they're, they're beaten down, I mean, they are, they're highways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I've done it where, you know, you get back 10, 15 miles where nobody else is mm-hmm. and you can just sit on a saddle where yep. you see these trails coming through. And yep. it, I've, I've seen more than once. I mean, you just sit there for an hour or two and eventually some caribou are going to come wandering over yep. because that's why that trail is so beaten down Right, is because they just continually use the, the exact same path. Yep. Especially a really good place to utilize that tactic would be if you're archery hunting north of the bridge mm-hmm. up there on the, on the slope. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, I know we've gotten several emails from listeners inquiring directly about hunting up north in the archery zone. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's no big secret. That is a very popular area for guys that just fly into Fairbanks and, uh, you know, rent a vehicle or drive up there with a, with a friend or something that they know in town. And then they just go up there and they just bow hunt inside the five mile corridor mm-hmm. up on the Hall Road. Or, or, or the Dalton Highway. Um, so that, that, that particular style of hunting, like you mentioned, is a really good way of incorporating that get out into a spot where it looks like the caribou are going to move through mm-hmm. and you just sit and wait. Um, you know, don't wear, don't wear, um, well, you don't have to use camo, but be conscious of what colors you're going to be wearing yeah. as well. Use natural colors. Use colors and solids are just fine, but use things that are going to adapt to your surroundings. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, that, that stuff has a lot of brown tundra and tussocks. Earlier in the season, it'll be more green, but Even winter then it'll be dark. Winter comes fast, and everything dies quicker up there mm-hmm. that far north than it does down here. It turns to brown and red fall colors up there on that open tundra way faster about a month or more ahead of time up on the slope than it does down here in the interior. Mm-hmm. So having some browns um, and some tan colors and maybe some muskeg green colors are going to be to your, to your advantage. Um, if you're wearing camo, you know, I, I, I'm not real big into camo. I, I don't think you need it. It's not bad. It doesn't hurt anything, I don't think. Right. Um, but if you are a camo guy, um, the Kuyu Velo pattern is the best, hands down, the best Tundra camo pattern out there. Mm. That stuff looks like it belongs on the Tundra. It's tan and brown and a little bit of light brown. It just, it, it looks like the terrain up here. It's perfect for it. Yeah. Any time of year, it, whether it's early spring, before, it, before everything greens up and pops into springtime, mm-hmm. or after that frost where everything turns red and brown and tan, mm-hmm. that is the perfect camo pattern for that. Um, so just, you know, for folks that might be wondering, well, what kind of camo do I bring? If you think you want to wear camo, I would shop that Kuyu Velo pattern. If you want to go with solids, um, a lot of stone glacier solid patterns, all that, uh, that, that buckskin tan color is right. really good up there. Um, they're muskeg brown colors um the grays work real well too mm-hmm. um and they've got that uh, that, that fern green looking pattern on, on yeah, the color on a few of their pieces mm-hmm. that's all going to work just fine up there yeah. um, but just using those earth tone solids that, that are going to match that surrounding um and then just you know 
glass them from the road if you have to, look at what direction they're going in, hike out their ways, and then just get into position and wait for them to come by you. Right. If you can find a willow bush or, or, or something next to a river or a rock outcropping on a hillside, um, if you have any terrain features available like that, that's going to be your best bet to stay hidden because like you mentioned, it's flat up there. Yeah. Once you <laughs> yep. get so far North, there is nothing to hide you. Right. Yeah. And so you're on your hands and knees a lot. It's wet. We mentioned that before. Um, you're probably going to end up wanting to wear knee boots. Even, um, it is, it's, it's just all water. Uh, once you get to a certain point, knee boots and rain gear usually. Yeah. 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 And, and having pants that are, you know, even if not rain pants, some kind of a hybridized waterproof pant with a knee pad built into it is Mm going to be to your advantage. I will say you want to be low to the ground as much as possible. The further North you get, especially once you get through the pass, um, the darker colors, I think the tan would probably almost be too light. You would stand out a lot with that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Even the gray stone glacier gray is pretty bright pretty light for up there it'd probably be better than the tan because it's mm-hmm. not as not as light but mm-hmm. I, I honestly what i found work really good kind of in a, a lot of alaska is what some of my favorite camos although i you know i don't tip, t- typically use camo on most of my hunts but is the dark waterfowl patterns mm-hmm. like yeah. the woodland waterfowl patterns at yeah because it, it matches all that marshy swamp land right it's right. either it's it's dark there's a pattern there's a little bit of green mm-hmm. a little bit of tan but it's just dark. Yeah. And so it either matches yeah. when you're sitting in the woods, you know, that or um, depending on what kind of area, I mean, look into the area you're hunting and look at pictures of that portion of the road. If you, there's a specific portion of the road you're looking at mm-hmm. and look at what it's like, cause there's alpine areas on the road, mm-hmm. you know? And, uh, and so that's going to be a completely different pattern. And that's where solids are nice. Cause then. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. You can just adapt. Right. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, something like that, where if you're archery hunting, obviously you have to get a lot closer to the animals. Um, yeah, it's it's going to be a lot of that ambush tactic, and you yeah. just try to get in front of them and let them come to you. It's going to be a lot harder for you to be the proactive one on the stalk yeah. and be moving on them because there is so limited cover out there. Right. If you're outside the five mile corridor, you can pretty much be somewhat stealthy and get inside three fifty and mm-hmm. in, into rifle range pretty easily. Yeah. It's not that hard. Right. They still feel pretty safe out to three fifty. Um, from my experience hunting the caribou up in that part of the state, even with rifle hunters, um, it's, it, it tends to be that once you're inside that 350 to 300 line, they start to get spooky because mm-hmm. again, there's no cover and they know that, um, that once you're inside that line, you're a little bit too close yeah. because there's nothing else walking up to them except caribou and they know you're not a caribou. Um, unless you happen to get lucky and they get curious and then you stand there for a while, which, mm-hmm. which definitely can happen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah. in my experience, once, once I've gotten inside that 300 yard mark, they kind of spook and, yeah. and the whole herd just kind of perks up and says, no, that doesn't belong here. And they just take off. And right. it's just a thundering of, of clacking hooves and they're gone. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that, that's, I, I would say of all the ambush style hunting, it's most important if you're doing an archery hunt like that, right. you're going to have to get in front of them. Um, now if you're, if you're bow hunting the 40 mile herd on, on a fly out hunt and you have some terrain features to your advantage, you know, you you can find them where they'll be moving across a hillside Mm -hmm. and there, there are some spruce trees and some willow brush there. 
get into that stuff. Yeah. Let them come right up to you. I mean, they will walk right yeah. past yeah. you yeah. in that kind of stuff. They really will. That is perfect for bow hunting. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you don't have that up north. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if we did, archery success would be way higher up there. Yeah. Um, but if, if you're bow hunting in other areas, then you can do a lot more of that proactive style spot and stalk and actually move in on them. Mm-hmm. Um, but well, and with caribou specifically, because there's typically so many of them, mm-hmm. you know, when you get into these bigger herds or even if it's just a band of, you know, a smaller band of, let's say 30, um, you got to keep in mind, that's a lot of eyes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and so color is a big thing. Um, but more than that, what Mo pointed out with movement, mm-hmm. I have found to be, huge yes. when sneaking up on caribou and keeping an, an eye on all of them not just your target but watch make, out for cows yeah watch that, out that for are, cows watch out bedded between you and the bull mm-hmm. yeah because right. they're all looking and all it takes is one of them to stand up and right. say that's not right right and, and then take off then they're all leaving right um exactly you know like what you had said with uh out in the 40 mile country i mean out there in the middle of winter wearing all black Carhartts. I've gotten within 30 yards of them using the terrain and keeping an eye on their, their eyes, where they're looking, where they're paying attention mm-hmm. and being careful with my movements. Yeah. Um, but you know, it doesn't take much, right? It doesn't take much to spook them. Right. Um, and movement I would say is, is the biggest thing. If you have terrain features, even if it's just low and you're able to crawl mm-hmm. very slowly. Yep. Um, they don't tend to care too much about very slow movements. Mm-hmm. Um, in a lot of cases, they'll just look right over you. Yeah. But any kind of a rush, yeah. you know, if you're trying to book it for that next bush or right. you're trying mm-hmm. to anything like that, um, then they will catch that out of the corner of their eye. And one of those, you know, 20, mm-hmm. 50, 100 right. caribou will see it. Yeah. So the primary means of, of archery hunting on the north slope specifically so once you're through the mountains and you're just in there's no trees there's no brush except for you know maybe some on the rivers depending on where you're at yeah um the primary way to hunt those caribou is to glass usually from the road find a group of caribou you want to go after you and you start walking towards them depending on how far away they are and then at some point you determine which direction they've been heading Mm -hmm. and you lay down you crawl over in front of them you know wherever you feel you know, because you got to make the judgment call on the spot, right? Right. You know, if it's real, if it's a real nasty day, you can get a lot closer to them, right? Because mm-hmm. they can't see as far because you, you know, and you can't see as far. You're also not going to be able to spot them as far away, but, you know, we'll have to walk as far then when you do spot them, right? <laughs> um, but you lay down and you just wait or you lay down and you crawl mm-hmm. towards the group that's really close to the road. Right. Right. And you just, you move very slowly. Mm-hmm. And when I say crawl, I don't mean your hands and knees. I mean, you're on your belly. Yeah. And yeah, it's miserable, but oh, yeah. when you finally do get to sit up and make that shot, which is a split second chance that you have to do it. Right. <laughs> right. It, it's very rewarding. Right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, um, talking about rifle hunting, I, I, I know we don't need to spend too much time on this, but let's just, uh, let's just touch on this for a second. Mm-hmm. This is where we like to nerd out. Yeah. All of us have opinions on this, but for guys that are wondering how much gun does it take to kill a caribou? Mm. Um, obviously that there are minimum legal requirements. Um, you have to hunt with at minimum 22 caliber, 22 caliber center yeah. fire rifle. Yeah. Yep. Um, obviously we, we don't recommend 
anything that small. Um, <laughs> right. Probably something in the small range would be like a 25 aught six. Some of those yeah. quarter bore small guys would be fine for that. Mm-hmm. Um, a 25 aught six would be a great caribou gun, actually. Oh, sure. You know, something like 100. At, at reasonable ranges, yeah. 110 grain <laughs> bullet inside 200, maybe 250 or mm-hmm. so it would be just fine. Um, but just for size reference, a really big bull, like we said earlier, is going to be about four to 500 pounds in right. that range. And that's that's a really nice big bodied bull. Yeah. Um, and, and for the record, I've only ever killed one that I think is even in that ballpark. Uh, and, and I've killed some some decent bulls mm-hmm. that are still not approaching that 500 pound mark. Yeah. Um, but the couple that I have, uh, well, I, I shot one of them and then the, the guy I was with shot another one that was another nice bull. And those were both um, too big to maneuver by myself. Mm-hmm. That they were just monster bodied bulls. Yeah. Um, but those I, I've, I've killed the majority of mine over the years, uh, to date with a seven rem mag mm-hmm. that's in, it works. Yeah. It's, it's flat shooting. It bucks the wind. Yeah. A 284 caliber, in my opinion, is probably my favorite, mm-hmm. um, whether it's a seven mag or a 280 Ackley or, um, um, something like a even like the new seven PRC mm-hmm. is a really right. good long one. Yeah. Um, twenty eight Nosler. It's it's faster than what you need, but mm-hmm. it's the the thing that I like about the two eighty fours for caribou is you can reach out there a bit farther. And caribou country where you're going to be able to rifle hunt is generally going to be pretty windy type country. Right. It's hilly. You've got a lot of variables. The wind is almost always going to be blowing in some capacity, mm-hmm. and you need to be able to judge wind. Yeah. The problem that guys run into with shooting caribou at long range in particular is if there isn't any foliage around, you have very few ways to judge how fast the wind is blowing at whatever distance the caribou is. Right. Mm-hmm. Because if it's calm where you're at, but 400 yards over to the caribou at the bottom of the valley, there's a nice stiff 10 mile an hour breeze. Mm-hmm. Well, you're going to have to hold wind or you're going to drift over. Yeah. Um, so be, just be aware of that. Try to keep that in mind. Um, something that I've done before is kind of watch the hair on the caribou, watch their mane, mm-hmm. see if that's kind of flickering in the wind one way or another. Um, if there if there are no bushes around or, you know, no leaves on the trees at that point to be able to tell that. Yeah. Um, that's something to keep in mind. And so for that reason... Something like a 284 caliber. Um, I, I already mentioned the the ones that I think would be good that are easy to find. Yeah. Um, it it it's going to do better than a slower moving like a 308. Yeah. Um, w- which is plenty enough gun for caribou, but it's a little more prone to wind drift. It's a it slower is. bullet. It's mm-hmm. not as efficient going through the air. It's not going to buck the wind as well. Uh, as as something like a 284 caliber will, mm-hmm. so that that's that's what I've gone with, and I've shot I've shot caribou from inside 100 yards out well past, um, uh, well past 500 yards. It it was <laughs> past that quite a ways, but I you know just for yeah not encouraging folks to take farther shots than they should. Um, I'm not going to say exactly how far the other mm-hmm. one was, but past 500, less than 1500. <laughs> yeah okay yeah definitely right. um past 500 inside a thousand somewhere in there um but you know i, I and to that point uh, i think it's a good time to mention um stay within your ethical range yeah yeah we talked earlier in the show about ethics and guys just slinging bullets just mm-hmm. because well it's just a caribou 
people look at caribou as if they are just disposable. Mm-hmm. They'll take longer shots than they normally would because in their mind, well, if I miss or just nick it or something, then there's going to be another one in five minutes and right. I can just shoot another one. Right. That shouldn't be the way that it is. And people, for some reason, seem to have this mindset that, well, it's just a caribou. It mm-hmm. doesn't matter. And it, sh- it, it should not be that way. It's, it's wrong. It's unethical. Yeah. And it's not the right thing to do as, as a sportsman, as a hunter. That's, mm-hmm. that's just wrong. Um, yeah. You draw blood, that's your animal. Yeah. If, you, if you release an arrow or touch off a round at an animal, you need to be confident that you're going to kill it. Yeah. And if you wound it, it is your job to, to get it, to kill it. Yeah. Follow up with it yeah. and finish the job. Absolutely. Um, and that goes for archery as well. A lot mm-hmm. of guys get up there on the north slope. They get, uh, they get in the frenzy and they think, well, and I, I, I just, I'm just outside my normal practice range. You know, I mm-hmm. practice out to, let's just say, 70 yards with my compound bow. Um, and this caribou is at 90. Mm-hmm. I can just hold over his back and shoot him. Yeah. And they shoot him and they nick him in the back strap or something, or they gut shoot him because there's terrible wind drift and the wind is howling. And well, the caribou runs off, crosses a river. I can't get to him. I'll just shoot another one. Yeah. Not a good idea. And stay inside your ethical range that you have practiced at. And that yeah. goes for bow or gun. But well, and, and yeah, I, I would say for rifle hunting, um, the most important thing as far as wh- how much gun it takes mm-hmm. is not necessarily the knockdown power because caribou aren't terribly hard to kill. They're, yeah. they're not the toughest mm-hmm. deer species out there. No. But it's whatever you are comfortable and knowledgeable in shooting. Right. right. Um, that being said, we don't recommend going out there with you know, a two two three. Right. though people have done it. Mm-hmm. you can do it with the right bullet within 50 with yards. the right bullet within the right range it can be done um yeah. but i don't recommend it and, yeah. and the reason i say that is because the temptation to push the limitations especially out there right exactly is very strong um you brought up staying within your ethical range mm-hmm. i will go as far as saying you need to bring a range finder when you are hunting oh, caribou yes. in these areas yep. um yes. when you're up in the the caribou areas it's wide open in most mm-hmm. cases. There may be some brush, there may be some small trees, but for the most part, it's going to be very wide open territory. And what that does is that gives you very few points of reference to judge distance off of. So if you're used to Kentucky windy, Kentucky windaging things um, based off of your own personal judgment of distance, I'm here to tell you, I've been judging distance for a long time, and even I get confused oh, up yeah. there without a rangefinder. It's it's insane. Y- you can look at a bush that's a thousand yards away mm-hmm. and think it's 400 right like because it's the only bush in right. the entire area right um and so and, and that's where it's like to be able to to stay within your ethical range you need to know the range mm-hmm. of the animal you're, you're shooting as you said with the wind mm-hmm. you know shooting a cartridge that you know will buck the wind because again wide open country lends itself to windy conditions yeah. right um and knowing when to limit yourself is so the biggest thing. Let's take this a step further. Mm-hmm. Know your range that you've practiced to and that you know you can hit reliably on target. Yeah. Have a range finder to determine that range. Mm-hmm. Also, know at what range your bullet that you are shooting reaches your minimum expansion velocity. Absolutely. Yep. Every bullet has it. Yes. At that range, 
whatever that is, mm-hmm. 1,800 feet per second is a pretty common one. Yeah. At 1,800 feet per second, your bullet is not guaranteed to expand and perform properly. At on, below that, yeah. At, at below that. Mm-hmm. So if you hit that range, let's just throw a number out there, at 700 yards. Right. Most folks can't shoot 700 yards. Yeah. I There, I said it. <laughs> <laughs> all, all the... All the wannabe snipers that, yeah. you know, post that they're shooting steel at five, six, seven hundred, eight hundred yards. Mm-hmm. Most of those guys, even the ones that shoot that at the range, it's in very little wind. Mm-hmm. There's very little Contro- variables going on. It, it's a very controlled environment. Yeah. Shooting off a bench. Shooting off a bench. Mm-hmm. And that's great. And that's great to practice that. And I'm not dogging on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that's not hunting conditions. Right. You need to be able to shoot prone on your bipod or off of your pack. Yeah. Whatever your, whatever your hunting situation is going to be. Mm-hmm. And go in the mountains and shoot that far. Oh, yeah. T- take a steel plate out. Run your four-wheeler out there. Put out a steel stand target, ride back up to 700 yards. If you think that's what you're going to be shooting at mm-hmm. and your bullet will perform at that distance, go practice that in the mountains, in yeah. the wind. Mm-hmm. See if you can even hit it. Yeah. It, it will open your eyes. Well, but no, I, I was just going to finish what, what, yeah. what I was saying there about the bullets. Um, at whatever range that bullet, say 700 yards, at that distance, if that bullet crosses below 1,800 feet per second, Anything past that 700-yard mark, that bullet is not guaranteed to mushroom and open up and expand properly, which ensures a quick, clean kill. At that point, the bullet might not open at all. Mm -hmm. It's just going to penetrate straight through it. It's not going to open. There's no expansion. There's no hydrostatic disruption inside the animal. You're basically shooting the animal with a full metal jacket, Yeah, which is not ethical. Right. Imagine shooting an animal with a field point out of your bow. Yeah. There's no expansion. Right. Yeah. You wouldn't do it because there's there's no cutting surface. There, yeah. There's no damage inside the right. animal. The same thing applies to a bullet when it crosses below its minimum expansion velocity. Mm-hmm. So know what that distance is. Figure out what your minimum expansion velocity is on whatever bullet you've got, whether it's a hammer bullet or a federal terminal ascent or a mm-hmm. Barnes TTSX or Nosler Acubond or, or whatever you decide to shoot. Or a hammer hunter. Or, <laughs> or the new hammer HHT, which has right. minimum expansion right. velocity of 1,700 feet per second. Right. right. So some bullets that are designed for a little bit extended range shooting for hunting mm-hmm. scenarios have a lower minimum expansion velocity. Yeah. Some down to 1,500 and, 1300. Even, and even 1,300 feet yeah. per second. Yeah. For the and ABLRs. That, and that extends that ethical performance of the Mm -hmm. bullet as long as you can accurately put it on target yeah so understand all that run it through a ballistics calculator know your velocity out of your rifle that's going to shoot that bullet and then look at your calculator and figure out that cutoff before you get to the field and you wonder huh i wonder if it's going to open at 800 now i'm going to add one more and make sure you recognize the condition change yes that you're going to experience because i'll tell you right now if you are setting up your rifle in Fairbanks, which is mm-hmm. 440 feet above sea level, right? and then you jump up into the mountains at 4,000 feet above sea level, your ballistics are going to be different. Right. The right. air is going to be thinner. Your, your powder in different temperatures may burn differently, giving you different velocities. You're going to, um, your bullet's going to fly sometimes farther, mm-hmm. sometimes closer, depending on right. the density of the air. 
Right. Um, so knowing those environmental conditions that you're going to be in during the hunt. Mm-hmm. And that's where I, I like what you said about actually going into the mountains yeah. and seeing if you can even hit it because yeah. that that's that verification. You know, mm-hmm. we tell people all the time to verify. Yeah. Um, for anybody wondering a quick tactic to apply this to your hunt, um, we had talked about finding the caribou, figuring out which direction they're going to be heading mm-hmm. and then staging up in that area, right? Yeah. One thing I have done multiple times that has proved very helpful is once I'm set up in an area, you just, it's really simple. You just take your rangefinder after you have figured out your, your ethical range and your, you know exactly what your, we call that the kill zone is. Mm-hmm. Then once you're seated and you know where you're going to be sitting, you take your rangefinder and you identify landmarks yep. mm-hmm. at known ranges. Yes. Because, it might not be a big landmark, but there might be a little tiny bush, yep. you know, right down the hill from you. There yep. might be another tree, you know, a little right. spindly tree off to the other side of the hill. There might be you know, a, a, a river or a ravine, you know, off to the side. Mm-hmm. And you can gauge, okay, once the caribou are past that bush, they're within, my le- they're within my ethical range. Right. You know, if they come in from this side or this side or this side, you basically, you build a circle around you of mm-hmm. landmarks yep. that you know the distance of. Right. So you know when they cross that bush, they're at 450 yards. Mm-hmm. Then you can start planning your hunt. Right. But if you see them and they're twice the distance you are from that bush, you know, they might look closer at that range, especially when right. there's uh-huh. not many other points of reference. Right. But you know better than to take that shot. That, yeah. that gives you that definitive line mm-hmm. that the caribou have to be this close to me mm-hmm. in order for me to take a right. shot. Right. And that will help you avoid one, a lot of misses. Mm-hmm. Because if you don't think, if, if you think they're closer than they are, you're going to miss. Yeah. Um, it'll avoid a lot of wounded caribou and yep. lost caribou. Yep. And it'll really just make the hunt a lot more ethical and a lot more enjoyable. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know, that kind of adds that, that foundation to it. Well, so. I, there's something satisfying to me anyway. And I, and I know for us here, and I'm sure for a lot of hunters in general, there's something really satisfying about planning your equipment, mm-hmm. learning your ethical distance that you can, that you can reliably kill at. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then you go out in the field, you have a plan, you execute said plan, and you kill an animal cleanly. One shot, done. Yep. It's over. You know that everything worked just right. It's the best feeling in the world. That is just a sigh of, I did it. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I planned it. I did my research. Yep. I listened to this guy's podcast about <laughs> how to do this. You right. know, right. I, I, I learned how to kind of build a an infield shooting plan and how I'm going to plan this, this mm-hmm. whole final of the hunt. And I did everything right. Yeah. Now, sure. Everybody makes mistakes. Sometimes that first shot, you don't read the wind, right? Your shot drifts back into the guts, rack another round, hold a little bit for wind, shoot it again. Right. Yeah. Now we talked about how caribou aren't hard to kill. Um, just to kind of wrap up the whole guns discussion, any n- normal, deer cartridge from the lower 48 is going to kill a caribou. Yeah. But like James mentioned, it's going to limit your range depending on what you've got. Mm-hmm. A 243 is a great whitetail rifle. Yeah. yeah. But it's not going to be as effective at any kind of distance for caribou. Right. Number one, they're over twice the size of, of a whitetail <laughs> buck if you shoot a big caribou bull. Mm-hmm. And you don't have that extended range ability and it really doesn't perform as well in the wind. Yeah. But if you've got anything from like a 270, a 30 six, 
Even a 6.5 Creedmoor is a fine choice. I know. Uh, um, Gotta quit bringing that up. James just James just hates it that I bring up 6.5 <laughs> no. Creedmoor. But hey, it so, works. It works just fine. 6.5 is not a bad caliber. <laughs> but I am just going to go on the record and say a PRC is a much better hunting you know round. even better than that? The RPM by Weatherby. The RPM by Weatherby is a very good one. It's basically the ballistic twin to a PRC. A little better. It's if basically do, the ballistic if, twin if, to a PRC. If you hand load, if you, hand you, load yeah. you can hop it up a little bit faster yeah. than a PRC. And then if you want to go crazy, you can get a 26 Nosler and burn your barrel out. <laughs> <laughs> or a 65300. Or, or a 65300. And the reason I say that is because of, of the, the, the distance that you may have to shoot at these right. caribou. You right. know, the, the, and the right. bullet puttering out to a point where it's not going to expand properly. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's where I say having that little bit of added velocity, mm-hmm. for me, yeah. makes it a lot more safe. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, but I mean, and I would say honestly, for for wind bucking, mm-hmm. um, six five would probably be my minimum. Um, yeah, I, I would say that for me is when you you get into that that bullet um, style, that design where it's just going to buck the wind like nothing else. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's gonna it's kind of very a, designed for that. A two sixty four bullet diameter um, with a weight of over 140 grains mm-hmm. with a boat tail and a polymer tip yeah is going to have a very good bc yeah for the, for the it, most it, part very good something yeah. like a hornady eldx or mm-hmm. hammer has what a 133 grain option i think it's 137 okay mm-hmm. um but yeah something and that's a mono metal so it's going to be very long for its weight yeah um but it, the 264s in that you know, high 130 grain and even up over 140 grain is going to be a good choice. Ballistically speaking, it's mm-hmm. going to buck the wind real well for its yeah. weight. Um, it, it's a very efficient round slicing through the air. You mm-hmm. can be a lot more sure of your shot. 284 is the same way. Right. A yeah. 284 with a 160 or better is a very good performing bullet in the right. wind. And, and that's why I've shot that seven rem mag that I've gotten for years. Um, for i've shot a lot of caribou with it especially mm-hmm. caribou um i probably I, I know i've killed more caribou well no i i don't know if i've killed more caribou or deer with that gun but no. at, at any rate I, i've i've <laughs> killed I, i've killed most of my caribou with that rifle right um and anything over that 160 grain range i've thought is the perfect blend of weight and power mm-hmm. but speed and flat shooting and buck in the wind um, I, I really like the 284 caliber mm-hmm. it, and, and the other thing is, and we mentioned this earlier in the show, you're probably going to, at some point, if you caribou hunt enough, you're going to run into some bears. Yeah. Not that you've got to be afraid of them, but if you decide that you're going to kill a black bear or even a grizzly bear on your caribou hunt, mm-hmm. then that 284 to me gives me a little bit more peace of mind yeah. that I'm going to be able to just thump that bear a lot better in my mind than I will with a 6.5 Creedmoor. Mm-hmm. That's where I kind of differentiate between a 264 and a 284. That 7 Rem Mag just has a lot more juice. And yes, a 264 caliber bullet will absolutely kill a grizzly bear. Absolutely, yeah. But I prefer a 284 caliber gun. It just gives you that that added insurance, yeah. that, that added mm-hmm. boost. And there's plenty of guys that caribou hunt with a 338 or, oh, yeah. or, or, or a 300 Win Mag is a very popular choice. It's very one of the popular. most common cartridges yeah. Yeah. up here in Alaska. Yeah. 300 Win Mag, 300 Short Mag. You know, Mariah's shot a 300 Short Mag for quite a while I now. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's a fine choice as well. 
if you get up if you get up into like a thirty caliber round and you hand load um, for like your thirty out six, something like a two hundred grain bullet that's going to have a little higher BC on it. It's going to buck the wind a bit better. It's going to slow it down, yeah. but you're going to make up for that in the efficiency that it has going through the air. Mm-hmm. And a three hundred wind mag, you can buy factory two hundred grain bullets for oh, absolutely pretty easily yeah. now. Even the one eighties, honestly, they'll, they'll fly yes. just fine. Yes, at, at any range, most people are reasonably able to shoot at. Yeah, so yeah, exactly. But again, it all comes back to knowing the performance limitations yep. of whatever you shoot. What right. you can ethically hit. Right. Yeah. So I was going to say back on the rangefinder thing real quick, mm-hmm. going to archery. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I still remember the first time going up on that archery hunt with my dad and him telling me, uh, you know, he gave me, um, or he let me use his rangefinder on and off. I think he just had the one, but he said, uh, we didn't get any caribou that trip, but he said, Hey, the, the distances are deceiving. You know, mm-hmm. and he wasn't talking 400 to a thousand. He was talking 40 to 80 or 20 to 40. Yeah. It seems insane. Yep. And to somebody who shoots targets in their backyard or shoots archery all the time is going to think we're crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But anybody who's been up there will testify that when you think it's 40 yards, it's 80 yards. Mm-hmm. And there's times when you think it's 80 yards and it's 40 yards. Yep. It, it's re- it's crazy and ridiculous. <laughs> and uh, it, it's just that point of reference, man. It, it's, there, it's, there is no point yeah, of reference. It, it's, there's no gauge to base it off of so you're just guessing basically based on how big the animal is and that's subjective yeah right so quick story yeah just to give an example of this and and this is this just proves this point and nails the puts the final nail in the coffin for this illustration i heard a story from an old timer guide that had a client up in uh on, on the north side of the brooks range um, and this was probably 30, 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. And the guide, this was his first time guiding a hunt up in that part of the state. He was, he was young at the time. He was just getting started. And uh, he's, he's long since retired but by now. But I, I bumped into him one day. I met him. And he told me this crazy story. And I, I couldn't believe it at first. But then as I hunted more up there, I found out how it could be true. So he said that he had a client up there and he had a grizzly bear tag. And one day they got up out of their tent and they looked up on the hillside and they said they saw a a, a really nice blonde grizzly bear. Mm. Well, he didn't pull out his binoculars or anything because the thing looked like it was a long ways away and they had to gain some ground and it looked like it was kind of walking away from them. Well, they approached and the bear didn't really seem to get any bigger. And they got closer and they realized they were at the bottom of the hill and the bear was seemingly within a few hundred yards. He said, at that point, I pulled up my rifle scope because he didn't, you know, he didn't even own binoculars at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said, I looked through the rifle scope and it was a marmot. <laughs> what? Oh, what? Him and the client both <laughs> thought that this marmot was a grizzly bear. At, a, oh at, at, at range. At range. Yeah. It was so <laughs> deceptive. There was nothing to reference it to. Right. Yeah. But they made this great stock. <laughs> On, on, on well, I, and for folks that don't know what a marmot is, it, it's basically a groundhog yeah. that we have up here. Yeah, um, a big groundhog. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and so he, it's the right color. Yeah, in the morning sun, he mm-hmm. just he he thought, and I think that was that was uh, that was in the Brooks Range, uh, but it, it was somewhere up north. Um, in the mountains, mm-hmm. um, I, I, I could have my location off a little bit. But <laughs> point being, there was no terrain variation anywhere except yeah. hills, no brush, no nothing. They were in the wide open in the mountains. Mm-hmm. They thought it was a grizzly bear. So if that doesn't <laughs> tell you something, 
Um, <laughs> okay, I'll use one of my own stories. I was sheep hunting a few years ago. Mm-hmm. I was by myself, and there were some clouds rolling through in the mountains, and I couldn't quite tell how far away this particular rock face was. And I'm just kind of panning over things with my spotter, just trying to pick through the fog and see if I can see any sheep through the fog on the mountainside. And I kept seeing something move its head. And I thought, hey, that, that's, that, that's, I think that's a sheep. And I stared at that thing in full power in my spotter for, it had to have been at least 20 minutes. I just stared at it. And I saw his head move, and I saw him kind of adjust and stand up at one point, I thought, and then lay back down and kind of turn his head and look around. Well, the clouds cleared, and it was, it was a marmot <laughs> up in the rocks. Really? And just, just with no reference, you know, just trying mm-hmm. to look through the fog, and there was, you know, there's no Co- trees. Color distortion. Mm-hmm. There's no that. trees. Yeah. There's right. no brush up there. I couldn't have... I, I thought it was a sheep. Yeah. It, and it was a real light-colored marmot. It was it was actually very light-colored. Mm. Um, but just case in point, it can happen to anybody, but perspective and terrain really throws you for a loop. Right. So be prepared for that. Yeah. And <clears throat> so hopefully we've covered most of the hunting tactics at this point. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah. Um, but let's dive into... The reason a lot of us like to hunt caribou, mm-hmm. which is the meat. Yep. Um, don't get me wrong. They're really, really good looking deer species. I think the, the antlers look great. Um, I love looking at giant caribou racks, mm-hmm. but I like eating them even more. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not yep. the racks, but the, the meat. That'd <laughs> <laughs> yeah, be tough to eat there, James. Yep. Des- and, um, desperate, desperate times. <laughs> desperate times. But... uh and so what can people expect from the meat depending on time of year? Yeah. Because as we talked about, the season goes from early August yeah. all the way, in most cases, through the end of March. That's a big difference. Yes. So in most cases, the what I would call the best tasting caribou mm-hmm. with the most fat on it mm-hmm. is going to be during that August, early September time frame. Yep. Um, that's majority, you know, pre-rut. Yep. That's when they've been fattening up through the summer. Yep. They're getting ready for winter. They haven't burned off any of that, um, chasing cows around. Right. Mm-hmm. And you're going to, you would be amazed at the amount of fat you can find on a caribou compared oh, yeah. to what most people will say. Oh yeah. Um, during that early, early part of the season. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, I gotta say, that's probably the, the best taste in caribou yeah. right there. Yep. Um, into the rut they do start to lose a lot of that fat. The oh, bulls yeah. do. Quickly. Very quickly. Um, they stop eating. They're just focused on chasing cows. Um, they're, they're fighting. Mm-hmm. They're exerting themselves a lot more. They're just going to burn that off a lot more. Testosterone is just pumping. Yeah. And, and anybody that's hunted anything during a, a heavy rut period knows oh, yeah. that the meat just tastes differently. Yeah. Um, but you're going to hear a lot of people say that it, it basically renders them inedible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's simply just not true. Right. Um, a lot of that has to do with field care. Yep. A lot of that has to do with um, the ethical take mm-hmm. of the animal as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like, like we talked about before, if you don't make a good shot and you just kind of wound it to death, mm-hmm. um, that's going to impact the taste. 
Um, and, and and really, that's true with any animal. That is very if, true. If, if you yeah. gut shoot any animal and it runs and lives on until you put it down 15, 20 minutes later when you can finally close in for the coup de gras, mm-hmm. um, it's, uh, yeah, it, it's going to be different because it's got all that adrenaline pumping through it. Yeah, it's, it knows fighting, it's, gonna die. it's fighting for survival. It's starting to break down. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, as that adrenaline pumps through that through that meat, mm-hmm. it's just gonna taste a little bit different. There's nothing you can do about that at that point. Yeah. Um, don't throw it away. Don't just uh, don't don't discard it. Yeah. Um, but just understand, a quicker, cleaner kill is going to help keeping that. It it, it will keep that from happening. Mm-hmm. A quick, clean shot will not allow that to happen. Right. And then. Later on in the caribou seasons, as you get into the winter hunts mm-hmm. over the winter time, a lot of that, those hormones from the rut will start to calm down. Yeah. A lot of that meat will clear up from, from the, the adrenaline and yes. the everything, but the fat reserves don't really come back. Right. Um, if you shoot a winter caribou, expect it to be extremely lean. Very, very lean. Very lean. I mean, it's, it's a hard life. Yeah. It's a yeah, hard being life. Being a caribou in the mountains. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and they don't stop moving in the wintertime. They're yeah. out there trudging through belly, chest deep snow. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it looks miserable. Yeah, they're they're <laughs> yeah. in the wind all the time. Um, yeah, it, it would be tough enough for a person to live like a caribou from spring till fall. Mm-hmm. It'd be just about impossible in the wintertime to yeah. live where they live in those kind of conditions on the move all the time. Right. It's, it's insane how much they move in the wintertime still. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I would say to that note, I haven't had personally. I haven't had a bad one, right? Um, yeah. And I've shot him in September before in mid rut and just after the rut. Um, I had one that tasted like uh, it tasted a little bit different. Mm-hmm. But I didn't think it was bad. Mm-hmm. It didn't smell bad when we cooked it. It you could just tell it had a little bit stronger flavor to it, right? But nothing that I felt was um, not edible. Yeah, I I think a lot of that comes from honestly people that just don't really like wild game in general. Yeah, um, caribou, and so anything a little bit yeah, off is yeah. just caribou tends to have a little stronger flavor to it anyway. It, it right? does. Yeah, even even like a good early August caribou still just has a distinct flavor to it. It's mm-hmm. it's not that mild moose or deer or sheep meat that that we we might be used to. Right. Um and it's certainly not the same as beef. It's it's just got a little bit stronger flavor to it, which mm-hmm. none of us mind and if you're used to eating caribou then it's then you know exactly what I'm talking about. Right. It's just a little bit different. Yep. Um but yeah, it's I I don't know. I, I I've shot them in the winter time too, and like you said, there is no fat. Yeah, at all. Yep. Um, in August, I think it's awesome. I've even ground up the fat with the meat after I bring it out. Oh, I, I don't I don't take all the fat off the meat. Um, when I skin the caribou out in the butchering process, I leave all the fat on the meat, and I'll just grind all that yep. up instead of buying like pork fat and things like that to add into the grind. Yeah. I just grind all the all, all of the animals' fat in with it. So. <laughs> Kind of fun fact. I do that with just about every animal. Oh yeah, um, yeah moose, me, me too. Caribou, mm-hmm. me too. Bear, if I can, if I get one that has a good amount of fat on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the reason to me why I've always done that is because it just feels that's the fat that's supposed to be with the mm-hmm. meat. Yeah, right? it feels you know, way. putting you know pig suet in it or anything like that is just. I don't know. I've done it before, and yeah. I, I don't judge people that do that. No. Um, if if that's your your chosen flavor, it's it's yeah. your hunt. It's your yep. meat. Do what you want with it. Yep. Um. But for me, 
I really enjoy just using the fat that came with the animal. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people that might be thinking we're crazy right now talking about this, um, there's a lot of misconceptions that go on with animal fats, mm -hmm. like wild game animal fats that they yeah. they sour, they'll they'll go rancid after six es months in the freezer. Especially deer species. Fat. Yeah, especially deer species. Um, if you take care of it correctly mm -hmm. and you store it correctly, I'm here to tell you, I've had burger in my freezer for a year and a half mm -hmm. that is mixed with nothing but moose fat. Mm -hmm. And it's fine. Oh yeah. There's no there's no souring, there's no rancidness, there's no off smells, there's no off tastes. Mm -hmm. Um if you like moose, you'll enjoy it. Mm -hmm. and, and it's honestly it's the best fat you can put in the meat, I think. Yeah. Um now, you know, if you just can't stomach it, yeah. That's okay. Yeah. But, you know, it's it's, it's up that, to you. that's your hunt. Um yeah. but that's what I do and I encourage people if you haven't tried it, yeah. definitely do try it. Yeah. Um the big thing though as far as maintaining the the quality of the meat before you bring it home is just keeping it clean mm -hmm. you want to try to keep as much hair off that meat as possible yeah and you don't don't want to just quarter that caribou out and throw it right on the tundra and get those no those leaves and, and grass all the and, lichen and lichen and all that other stuff all over the meat bring out a tarp yeah set it on a tarp mm -hmm. make sure it goes straight from under the hide you know coming out onto the tarp clean it off, get all the extra stuff off of it before you put it in the game bags. Mm -hmm. And then when you get it back to wherever you're going to hang it up for a little bit, um, whether that's back at your camp, if you're able to shoot more than one, or maybe you're with a party and other people are still trying to hunt. Um, when you go back and you hang it up, make sure it's protected from bugs, make mm -hmm. sure it's protected from sun, make sure it's not going to spoil. Don't use cheesecloth game bags that flies can still lay eggs on the meat Yo, through the bag. Right. Exactly. Right. Uh, one trick I learned years ago that it has proven invaluable is bringing a spray bottle with white vinegar in it. Mm -hmm. um, you spray down, once you get it back to camp and you, you're hanging that meat up, you go through meticulously and you pick out all the twigs and all the hair and all the everything off of it and you spray it down with white vinegar. When you're cooking the meat later on, you cannot taste it at all. It doesn't, it doesn't change the flavor of the meat at all, but what it does is it kind of keeps the flies and keeps the, the bugs off mm -hmm. of it long enough for it to crust up to right. where it's naturally protected from it, it that. helps it crust up a little bit faster yeah. you can yeah. get a, a game preserver like powder mix that you mix into a spray bottle mm -hmm. if somebody's afraid of using the white vinegar or something it's like a citrus okay. uh, base yeah. and, and you just spray your meat down with that in the same way and mm -hmm. uh, it does the same thing it actually kind of forms a little bit of a crust and it mm -hmm. keeps the flies off yeah so also black pepper yeah works mm -hmm. in that regard as well um, if you don't want to spray it down, if you don't want to spray it down with anything, um, bring like a Ziploc bag of, uh, of black pepper mm -hmm. and, uh, take handfuls of that and then just rub that game bag down. If you have cheesecloth game bags, or if you're just hanging the meat exposed from mm -hmm. like a meat hanging pole and you just want all the airflow that you can get, you don't want it in a bag for now. You're just trying to get it to cool off on the bone. Yeah. Rub it down with black pepper. That'll keep the flies off of it as well. Yeah. Um, not quite as well as, as like a spray-on treatment will. Right. But it's better than nothing. Well, and salt too. Yeah. Because what salt yep. will do is salt will pull that moisture out of that outer layer of the meat mm -hmm. and just kind of amplify the crusting effect to where yep. it just, it, it'll crust overnight sometimes. Yep. Um, to where it's protected from. And the flies just can't lay their eggs through that. They can't, they can't penetrate that crust. Um, and the biggest thing... You can hang your meat for a couple of days. Mm -hmm. Fresh meat, you know, fresh off the hunt. You can hang, if, you, if you're going to be back there for 
a couple more days, mm-hmm. you're usually okay. But the biggest thing is keeping it out of any kind of direct sunlight, mm-hmm. keeping it out of, you know, keeping it like you had pointed out with high airflow. Mm-hmm. The more airflow you can get, mm-hmm. the better. Yep. Um, and then you'll be fine. Keep, keep it clean. Keep it out of the sun. Yep. Keep it, keep the bugs off of it. it and dry. you're going to keep it dry. That's yep. a big one. Yep. And you're going to have just fine as far as meat quality goes. Yep. Yep. And, and obviously the later in the year it gets, once you get into September, you get those nice, cool, crisp nights. Mm-hmm. That's going to really help. Just oh, yeah. immediately chill that meat down over the first night. It'll be cool by the morning usually mm-hmm. um, if you have it hung. If you can't hang it, um, another great tip is uh, if if you're on a road system hunt and you're going to spend the night and you've killed a caribou, um, take your ATV rack, or I, I'm sorry, loading ramp, and take the game bags mm. and lay them on top of that ATV ramp in the bed of your truck. Yeah. So it's off the bed. Mm-hmm. You've got airflow over it and under it, and yep. then keep it covered so that it's not gonna get rained on maybe just put a tarp over the bed of your truck yep I've but done that, that way that way you can just leave the tailgate open air will get in there and circulate through there it has a chance to kind of dry i do that whenever i go on like a road system caribou hunt where i've got an atv in the bed of my truck even mm-hmm. if i don't bring my four-wheeler i'll still bring my ramps just so that if i don't have anywhere to hang it overnight i can just throw it on that rack in the bed yeah and keep it um, keep air circulating around that meat. Mm-hmm. That's your biggest thing is get airflow around it and then also keep it dry. Yeah. Um, if you're on an August hunt and you got to spend the night somewhere, you have nowhere to hang it, you have nowhere to kind of build like a little spruce pole um, rack on the ground to lay it on to get airflow around it. Another thing you can do if you're in a pinch and it's in August and it's going to be hot and it's not going to cool off overnight like you want it to, put it in game bags put it in contractor bags, and then go stick it in a creek somewhere. Yeah. That'll help cool it off overnight. It's not the best thing. It's best to let it cool to ambient temperature first Mm. and then put it in the water in a contractor bag. But that way you're not soaking the meat. You're not getting it wet. But that uh, cold water temperature is going to help drop the temperature of that meat as well. Yeah. That's, That's something you can do if you're in a pinch. And the, and the more crusted it is, the more mm-hmm. protected it is. Exactly. Um, and so really, once it has a nice, solid leathering on the outside of it, um, keeping it cool is really all you've got to do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, keeping it out of direct sunlight, anything mm-hmm. like that. I mean, if you're just waiting for your plane to come back and pick you up, you're going to yep. be just fine. Yep. Um, yep. And those, those are the biggest tips. And then when you get back to town, make sure you take care of it nicely there too. Yeah. You know, don't just leave it in the back of the truck for... No. for the night or you know the weekend until you can get to it hang it up hang it up in the make, shade make sure it's cared for you know yep. the, the coolest place you can find to hang it is where it should go yep um yep. whether that be in your garage as long as you're not around a bunch of chemicals um right. you know cleaner sprays or anything like that that you would use in a garage um if you have a, a relatively clean working space in there it's a good place keeps mm-hmm. it away from most of the bugs keeps it out of the sunlight right mm-hmm. um you know under a couple of big shady trees mm-hmm. is just fine too yep. um and really as long as you take care of it, like you said, you've never had one that you would deem inedible. No. And, and I think, and I never have either. Right. And, and I think in most cases, when you talk to people that claim to have never taken a, an inedible mm-hmm. bull caribou, um, that's the case with all of them is they just, they, they take it's extreme precaution in right. taking care of the meat. Right. Because that's the biggest reason I'm out there. I mean, yeah, yep. like I said, it's cool to shoot a big, nice, mature caribou they, mm-hmm. they look awesome they're yeah. awesome 
animal to just go out there and watch in the wild. You know, it's a great experience. It's a great hunt. Yeah. Um, it's a lot of fun. It, it's a fun but, way to see a lot of animals too. Yeah. But you, making sure you bring as much of that meat back yeah. in good usable condition is, is the ultimate goal. Yeah. You know, that's the ultimate goal of hunting is, yep. is it's a resource collection system. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I would say one more thing too for for some of the newer guys that are that are possibly coming up. I know we talked about this earlier, um, but if it's your first time hunting caribou here this fall in Alaska, make sure that you know what all of the salvage requirements for meat mm. are in the regs. You have to take out all edible meat off yeah. of your game animals, and that is specifically defined in the fish and game reg book. Yeah. Make sure that you know what you have to take out. In some units with caribou, you have to take out the ribs on the bone. Mm -hmm. Others, you can bone them out in the field if you don't want to bring out the rib cage. Right. Know that before you go out. Right. You don't want to get out there and not have a bone saw or some kind of a way to get the rib cage off of the animal carcass mm -hmm. and then realize that that's what you have to do. That's not a good feeling. Yeah. I, I've heard of guys that have gotten written up over that and they've gotten written up over, over a lot less. Um, and, well, and especially on some of these higher traffic caribou hunting areas, yeah. the troopers will be out there checking the harvested animals mm -hmm. and they will ask you, they'll pull you over if they see meat in the bed of your truck or, or a rack sticking out. All right, let's pull out your game bags, mm -hmm. empty them out. I want to see what you took. Yep. And if you don't have enough meat, you're in trouble. And they will make you go back to the gut pile with them. Oh, yeah. And show them where you shot it. Yep. And the standard mm -hmm. for wanton waste in, this, in the state of Alaska is if they can take their knife and scrape off any edible meat off those bones, you have the, a high potential of getting a ticket. Yeah. yeah. Um, even if it just goes in a burger bag yep. and you're, you're just throwing it in a game bag to be bur burgered up when you get back to town. Yep. It needs to be taken off that animal. Yep. And as it should be, honestly. Yeah, I mean, yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about kind of the last thing here with caribou. You shoot a caribou, mm -hmm. you walk up to it. The first thing you're going to notice is, holy smokes, that thing's gut is huge. <laughs> caribou, <Yeah>. caribou <laughs> are very bloaty creatures. <laughs> Pop-bellied deer. They, uh, it's, it, seems, it seems like as soon as you shoot them, you know, the, the rib cage collapses, mm -hmm. the air goes out of the lungs, and they're laying on their side there, and the, and <laughs> yeah. the gut is just a big balloon. <laughs> it is. They bloat instantaneously. Mm -hmm. It's like their gut just starts to rot immediately. Um, and it has to do with how they digest their food and how they chew up their food and how, how that process works. Um, I, I believe that caribou chew the cud. Mm -hmm. So part of that is the food that's not digested yet there's gas in that, and then they, and then they, re, re, they regurgitate that back up to then rechew, to then swallow, to then process through their, through their digestive tract. Well, when you kill them, they immediately start to bloat up and get real gassy, and every caribou hunter has done this, where you're making your first cut. If you're, making, <laughs> if, if you're going with the gutless method, which if you're not going to do a shoulder mount, that's the most common way, I would recommend not going in from the top down you're going to get more hair, get and, so everything. hair and everything. Mm -hmm. that way, yeah. if, if you're not preserving the cape for anything, if you're not going to do any kind of a mount, use the gutless method. Yeah. Go watch a video on that. You know, learn how to do that. At some point, we'll have an in the field video demonstrating that yeah. um, at some point in the future. Um, but 
if you use a gutless method and you're making that first cut up the bottom of the belly, mm-hmm. <laughs> you're going to nick that stomach and you're going to get a face full of gassy air. And it's just the worst. It really it is. Really, really <laughs> stinks. Air if you're lucky. Yeah. Air if you're lucky. <laughs> yeah. Greens if you're not. Right. But the problem is guys don't understand that. They don't understand how tight that stomach is. Mm-hmm. They make a cut and they spill guts all in the cavity of that animal. Yeah. And they get that garbage on all the meat mm-hmm. and they complain about how their caribou meat when they get back home just smells rancid. Yeah. Well, it's covered in guts. Yeah. Right. That's not what you want to do. So be very, very careful to not do that. And if you nick the guts, change tactics, rip the guts out. Mm-hmm. Yep. If you cut the guts open and that's getting on the meat, your mission is now not to do the gutless method. Now you're gutting the animal before right. you do anything else. Yeah, You need to get that off of the animal. Reach in there, scoop that junk off the meat, mm-hmm. clean it off as soon as possible. If you have a water source nearby, as soon as you get all the meat off the carcass, take it down, wash it off. Yeah. Yes, it's going to be wet, but it's better to be wet and then have to dry it out later than it is to be covered in um, in gut and bile right. and intestinal fluid than it is to just have a little bit of uh, of water on it. That, the, that, that'll dry. Yeah. The guts and that acid and that stomach juice is going to mm-hmm. permeate into that meat, and that can make a caribou inedible. Yeah. The biggest way I've seen or I've tried to avoid doing that is especially in in, with lower 48 deer hunting you see a lot of guys going in from the rump back towards the chest Mm -hmm. uh, when they're gutting out an animal yeah um I do the opposite Mm. so my first incision is always up by the sternum and then I'll take uh two fingers and just spread that you know I'll, I'll make the incision just long enough I can get my fingers in there and spread them apart and then you basically just kind of run that blade in between your two fingers, pushing that hide out. Yes. And what you'll find is after, you know, after the first couple of inches of, of pushing that cut down the, down the underside of the animal, you'll feel where your kind of, your fingers are pushing the hide up from that membrane. Yes. And that will allow you to just barely keep the tip of that knife underneath just the hide. Yeah. And you'll go right around that punch. Don't shove the whole blade of the knife into yeah. the animal and then just start ripping back. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> you'll, you'll feel the punch start pushing against the hide right. as you cut through just the hide and, and it's, it's seamless. I mean, you get to the and, end of it and you're, you're good to go. And you it's can gonna, start peeling it back. Yeah. It, it's going to be tight as a balloon. Oh, yeah. When you're doing absolutely. that. I mean, you will know what is gut and what yeah. is. And, and it might even start pushing out from behind your hand. Not oh, to be yeah. too graphic. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, it, yeah. You know, it, yep. it'll start ballooning out yep. through that slit. Yeah. Um, as soon and, as you cut a hole for it, it's going to start popping out. Yeah. It's crazy. Yep. But, but yeah, yeah. No. Yeah. Managing the guts is a big thing. Um, I typically do gut my caribou. Um, just kind of to avoid that because it's such a, a, a right. bloated area. Yeah. Um, I, I, I do tend to, to pull the guts out before yeah. I start processing and then I'll yeah. separate the carcass from the gut pile, right. um, just to avoid any, right. Any possibility of that. Yeah. Um, the when other it, thing is I would recommend people, if you're going to come up all the way up here to hunt a caribou, mm-hmm. keep the hide. Yeah. It doesn't weigh that much. Yeah. Um, it's not like a moose hide or something like that. Right. And there's a ton of uses for caribou hide. I mm-hmm. mean, one, they just look cool. But two, if you're just looking for like a, a really awesome, um, yeah. you know, just something to throw over yourself on the couch or something like that. Yeah. One, what's well, cooler than something you killed right. to do that right. with? But yeah. two, yeah. caribou hair is, is the hollow follicle hair. Mm-hmm. And so it's very warm. 
Yeah. Um, and so you can you can do a lot of cool stuff with it. Yeah. I, I would highly recommend everybody bring yeah. that out of the out of the field. Yeah. It, it, well, it, even just on that note, for folks that might not have a picture of what that might look like, if you make all your cuts uh, when you're taking the the animal apart, skin it like you're using the gutless method. Make a ring around each of the knee joints. Skin that back on the inside of the leg. Mm-hmm. Connect that cut to your center cut on the chest, and then cut the hide off somewhere up, somewhere up on the neck. Yeah, and you'll have that white hair up on the neck. Mm-hmm. Then as it turns to gray, and then back to that kind of real dark gray on the body, you get those accent lines. Um, yeah, that I I really really like the colors in mm-hmm. caribou, and especially yeah. as you get later in the season when the hair gets longer. And that mane turns real white on all the bulls. Mm-hmm. That is really, really pretty. It, really it makes is. It, it makes for a beautiful wall hanger. Yeah, even if you just yeah just just stretch it out on a wall somewhere, it looks yeah. really, really nice. Really nice. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, all right. Well, I think that just about wraps up caribou talk. So, yeah. um, hopefully, we have addressed a lot of you guys' questions. Um, yeah. If we didn't, definitely feel free to write in mm-hmm. again. Um, and. Again, if you go to thenorthernhunter.com, we have a nice contact us button there. Yep. Um, our email is info at thenorthernhunter.com. Or if you reach out to either one of our socials that we have currently, it's at thenorthernhunter on Facebook mm-hmm. or Instagram. Um, and we do our best to reply as fast as we can. Um, while you're on the website, hopefully contacting us, uh, definitely get some Northern Hunter merch. The yep. shop page is now live. We have uh, some hoodies and hats and shirts and things like that nature on there there's more designs coming mm-hmm. and uh leave us a rating you know and share this with your friends uh, if you know anybody coming up here for a caribou hunt yeah um and check out the partners page on our website too yeah. mode put a lot of work into that it looks real nice and uh dalton you want to tell them a little bit about the people on there yep if you shop from our sponsors we've got yukon river knives hammer bullets and uh, stealthy hunter gear is all the same discount code the northern hunter at checkout Batum 907, our discount code is TNHP at disc, uh, for the discount code at checkout. And then uh, Weatherby Rifles in mm-hmm. Sheridan, Wyoming is our remaining partner. No discount code there. But again, if you buy a rifle from them, let them know we sent you. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, that helps us out. That helps these companies out. All of them are great American companies. They're, uh, some are big, some are small. Yeah. Really helps everybody out. And yep. uh, again, if you end up getting any of these products and using them in the field, definitely send us some pictures and some stories. I, I just want to add one more thing. I've gotten a few Instagram messages from some listeners here in, in the last week or two, um, and I've had some good, uh, you know, back and forth conversations with folks that just have some questions about stuff that I've mentioned on the podcast before, um, and they've mentioned how they've recommended the show to their friends. Mm-hmm. That is more effective at helping our show reach more folks than you might realize. Oh, yeah. You might just think, well, it's just one guy. Well, then he's going to have three guys that he works with that he's going to share it with. Mm-hmm. Word of mouth does help us out a lot. And, and we've yeah. got a lot of exciting things coming that we want as many folks as possible to yeah. find out about the show and um, help contribute with questions and uh, future episodes. Our whole goal here is to be educational and informational. Absolutely. Um, we try to be entertaining sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully you know, y'all think so too. <laughs> all, all three of us are, uh, are, are close friends. You know, Mo and I um, um, share family relations. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, but <laughs> <laughs> he says that with such enthusiasm. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, just, uh, I, I, I just want to reiterate to folks, thank you for writing in with all your content. We appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Um, Caribou, like James said, this is by far the most popular topic oh, yeah. of a question that we've gotten. Yeah. Um, so we hope it's been a help to you. 
continue to reach out to us and recommend it to your friends. We can't thank you guys enough for making this possible. Absolutely. Ratings and reviews also help a lot with spreading it on the algorithms. Yeah. So, yeah. But all right, guys. Well, until next week, get out there, get after it, and good luck. We'll see you there.